0: Welcome to the Pure Cinema Podcast. I'm Eric Kane, and this is Episode Nine. Joining me, as always, Brian Sauer.
1: Good evening, sir. How you doing? I'm good.
0: Nine episodes in, man. This is like two months of uh, podcasting.
1: That's crazy. It went really quick.
0: Yeah, it's been it's been a lot of fun so far, and our last last one was really fun in person.
1: Oh man, what a good guest.
0: Yeah, Steve's great, uh, and we're definitely. I think we have to get him back on uh, every season
1: yeah no he's a he's a good luck charm now i think i think we've we've sort of set that in in motion and he, he definitely has to come back
0: so uh something that came up between us uh recently you know in, in regards to podcast it's one of those shows where we didn't know exactly what we were going to do when we first started and we've and it quickly took form like it seems even in, by the end of episode one we kind of knew what the show was going to be even though we it will probably keep changing and uh we we discussed it a few weeks ago that we just wanted to put you know let our listeners know uh, that the way we are envisioning the show to keep the um, content as good as possible and to keep as passionate as we can be, that we want to kind of do it in 12-episode arcs uh, with one bonus episode thrown in there where we will kind of uh, address uh, listener questions, topics, and just kind of have a free-form episode that's just fun uh, in the middle there. Uh, and then every 12 episodes take a couple weeks off. A regroup, come up with new topics, things that we're excited about, watch some more movies, because uh, we just want to stay excited about doing it. And I think that's the key to doing uh, a show like this.
1: Yeah, we definitely don't want to burn out. Um, there's definitely some podcasts I listen to that I feel like, you know, they, they're some of them are their early to second season sort of scenarios or they're early on. And I, and you can kind of tell sometimes, you know, that maybe they're not going to be able to maintain. You hope they will, but you, you kind of worry about um, just getting burnt, burnt and, and starting to have uh, negativity and other things come in that uh, we definitely don't want. And I don't think we would have that problem, honestly, but... Well,
0: it's easy to get burned out when you're busy. You know, uh, this is something that so far we both love, and I think we didn't realize how much effort we'd want to put in. Every we were thinking initially, like 45-minute episodes, you know, just a quick chat, and then it became (laughs) editing. It became a show where we're like, you know what, we 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 care about the content so much. Uh, Every movie we kind of want to rewatch, and I think this is great, and I and it makes me excited. It's like having a TV show where you want to plan in the off season some of the arc to the episodes, and uh, to me, it's all it's all a really cool thing. So uh, this is episode nine, so there's going to be uh one more episode next week then a bonus and then two more before the break so still lots of lots of good content coming out and uh uh i think you know, we'll decide how long in between each season we'll see how we probably won't be able to stay away knowing us
1: yeah yeah no i don't think so <laughs> not, the, not the way we're going i mean it really it's a, it's a tribute to the listeners who have been incredible and i can't thank them enough for their feedback and the kind words and the support um that is the thing that has gotten us so excited about doing the show and doing more research and rewatching all the movies i mean i just the show went to a a place i totally didn't expect and it's been really wonderful and i i don't know i'm I'm still kind of floored by how great the listeners have been
0: Yeah, yeah that's fantastic and i also think it's it's like some shows I think go bi-weekly for that same reason, or they go monthly. There's some great podcasts I love that come out only once a month, once a month, and I and I don't really want to do that. I, that's too infrequent for my taste. So it's kind of like I'd rather do it weekly, but for short bursts, really high quality. Take a little break, do it again. And I think that's yeah. You know, I think it feels right for this show. So we just want to throw that up the top uh, so you guys are aware when it comes around. Uh, and uh, yeah, but today we're kind of doing something uh, not dissimilar to the Hitchcock episode. Which uh, I definitely haven't watched this many movies since the Hitchcock episode This was definitely a week where I could have just gone another two weeks of just viewing Um, But our idea was to discuss neo-noir films uh, So modern films for me mostly post 1970 or so Largely in color uh, versions of noir films neo-noirs and our idea was to pair each neo-noir choice with a classic noir or not necessarily, you know, well-known classic, but, uh, something from that, uh, period, you know, forties, fifties, uh, noir.
1: Yeah. I I love this idea. And, uh, it was very research intensive, which is great. Um, just fun to go back and rewatch both, um, the classic stuff and the Neo stuff. Um, some of these are, I'm going to name or uh, at least two of them are a couple of my favorite movies ever. And I was reminded why I love them so much upon this rewatch.
0: Yeah, I, I have a mixture of like, uh, you know, some that are my favorite. Some are really just because... Uh, you know, because they, I thought there were interesting films. I thought to highlight or a film I hadn't thought about for a while and got excited to think about. And, and some of the pairings are unusual. Like I found myself, some have like a thematic connection and others are really, there's almost nothing, maybe a location linking it. Uh, it was an interesting one to start putting together on that front.
1: Yeah. I, I had some trouble with a couple of the pairings where I was just like, I feel like these go together. Or I, or I had to switch out the pairing like two or three times. Um, before I figured like the one that I still maybe wasn't exactly right, but I I liked those two movies together and I couldn't even explain why, but yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun.
0: Well, and sometimes you'll just come up, you'll have just an idea of a pairing and before rewatching it, then you'll rewatch the film and you'll see something that's like a direct Connection. You're like, wow, like I did not see that coming. I had that a couple times, a couple times where I'd picked the film and it was just completely wrong. And I realized, all right, I'm going to drop it. So, especially with my classic picks, I definitely wasn't picking my favorite movies. It, it really didn't turn out to be like, these are my five favorite noirs, not even close on a couple of them. There's a couple that I would say. It was much more like, oh, no, this is an interesting noir because, you know, so many. I mean, when I started looking up the classic noirs, there was like, you know, 50 great movies out there. I still had not seen, you know, another hundred that are just brilliant. It's there's so much to choose from. Uh, What about neo-noir, though? I wanted to add before we get into it. I mean, like uh, I I, it's I really love neo-noir and and from whether it's something that stylistically uh, like expressionistic and it's kind of lighting. Uh, like a purpose homage to noir, or if it's more just the you know hard hard boiled crime film, it's always been something that's caught my imagination, and I, I have a feeling this is somewhere where we really our interests really intersect.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love the conventions and the subtext, if there is, and there often is in in older noir, but when you bring it into a more contemporary setting, there's so much more commentary. There's so much more sort of stuff to think about um that if you hit the right one it just really I mean we're talking about movies that stick with you you know not in the cult way necessarily but in a way that man some of these I just rewatched one today I'll talk about later and it's one of my favorites I've seen it a ton but every time I'm left pondering for just hours afterwards and I love that
0: yeah, I know it's a great feeling, and there's a couple biggies uh, that we there were just a couple that I'm going to name up front because I know sometimes you guys are sitting there in agony. Uh, Blood Simple is a film we both agreed up front is just like a near perfect movie, and if you haven't seen the Criterion, run out and get it. Uh, I I feel like uh, you know to me it seems like something that everyone's probably should be aware of. Uh, same with Body Heat, like both fantastic, uh, modern, uh, neo-noirs, uh, that you should definitely check out, but aren't going to be on the five today. Um, and, and one fun test I was having in my mind as I was watching and thinking about neo-noirs was this idea that I could flip it to black and white and it would just be exactly the same.
1: Well, that's cool. <laughs>
0: you know, like I was watching these movies in my mind going, yeah, I bet if I flip that to black and white right now, it' still just have the exact same power and, uh, you know, just feels right. And I, and it's kind of nice having a movie like drive, uh, whether you love it or hate it you know, some people are kind of polarized i love that it kind of maybe got some reinterest and reinvigorated people towards that, that those kind of tropes
1: absolutely no that movie's a great example of of kind of what we're talking about um although i feel like we're not going to be at least for my list it's not as much modern 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 stuff like post 2000 stuff but um, there's so yeah, much no, it's, me it's, neither. it's it's something that never goes away it feels like neo noir crops up you know, every few years there's another decent one. You know,
0: yeah, and it comes. I mean, I think I think people are really interested in this. Like, uh, more, I guess you'd call say moral ambiguity. Like, it's it, characters who operate in a gray area, and that was the interesting thing about those movies being black and white, because often the characters were, you know, gray, and and you'd have like a cop character who's also uh, got a dark side, or you know, and and it's the, all that post-war. I guess it's angst. I mean it's it's a surprising thing. Uh, I haven't read enough books up on noir per, per se, but it, you know, you think you, you, they won the war, but then they come back and they bring all this pain and uh almost uh, loathing of what they'd seen at war and it kind of k- spreads into the the culture of the especially the men of these movies. A lot of mistrust I, I, and I don't this I, this is really might be grasping for it, but I often wonder if some of the mistrust of woman and the idea of femme fatale springs from, you know, men being away at war and not knowing what their woman were up to, you know, coming back. I have no idea, but there's so many, uh, I mean, I, I think we should save an episode just called femme fatales down oh, yeah. the road yeah. because this I is, think there's so many we could explore.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's so, this is far from the last noir episode we're going to do. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, just, I think we're both, especially having, having gone through the rewatching we did for this episode, I think we both agreed, um, that it's, it's definitely something that, we, we, a world we love to live in and a place, you know, a place we want to go again with the show for sure.
0: Yeah. And I think it's more, I think for this episode, the idea is neo noir. This is an, an ep- our episode about neo noir picks that we are pairing with some classic movies. So it's kind of an, almost like chasers to kind of enhance the taste of the new ones.
1: Absolutely. Do you want to go first?
0: Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm down to, this is one that was, we had two that were, that we had to split. So we only had two titles. We haven't shared all our title, all our neo noirs, but there's two films that we both loved and we kind of split them. So I'm going to start with my number five, uh, which is uh, yeah, this is the only time I'll ever do a plug for a movie. There's a film that I helped produce called The Frontier and it's a keynote release and it's like, if it's perfect for this episode. So that's why I'm going to bring it up. It's completely uh, authentic neo noir, uh, down to every detail by my friend who directed Orange Shea. And uh, this film, number five, the reason I'm bringing it up, it's on Netflix too, which is cool. Uh, Number five is a film that I know we both really liked when he was telling me about the film. And that's Red Rock West by John Dahl.
1: Looks like the only thing you didn't lie about is your marriage. Marriage is just a state of mind. Not in Texas. We're not in Texas. I also know you love this film. I do.
0: Uh, the best thing is you've got uh, total peak Nick Cage. This is like my favorite period of Nicholas Cage. Uh, you know, Wild at Heart, Red Rock West. He's just in top form as a leading man. Uh, he's ex Marine type. He's he's a good guy. What he's, he's he hits that classic. Uh, reminds me a bit of Orson Welles and a Lady from Shanghai. Like a drifter uh, who just wants to work. And just wants honest work. Uh, but he can't get it, and he's got a bum leg. Uh, it's got and the, which could be a problem on building crews, and he ends up uh, blowing into this town and being missed. Uh, by J.T. Walsh is behind a bar, and he accidentally uh thinks that this guy because he's from Texas is a hitman called Lyle from Dallas, and you know Nick Cage kind of just goes, yeah, sure, that's me. Uh, thinking I want a job, he doesn't know what the job is, and he slowly is drawn in and very classic. I think this is one of the great like color. Uh, exp- like they're using color in the same way they're using uh, shadow and light in classic noir uh, and it's so stylish and he, he basically gets pulled in that JT Walsh wants to uh, kill his wife which happens to be Laura Flynn Boyle post Twin Peaks looking you know just gorgeous and cold um, but she looks like a bit of an homage to um, Ava Gardner I think in The Killers uh, and then he gets pulled into this but of course the, his, his bigger problem uh, starts to emerge when the real hitman who uh, who's Dennis Hopper, who I, I have a theory that he's literally Frank Booth in an earlier adventure <laughs> <laughs> because he's dressed just like
1: it. <laughs> think you are real hot shit, don't you, Mark?
0: Ah! Uh, and he, he's just amazed. This is like, you know, in fact, I think I've mentioned Dennis Hopper almost as much as Joe Don Baker this season. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he's great as the actual Lyle from Dallas. And the way they interact is hilarious. Like J.T. Walsh has kind of turned on Cage because he's realized he's not the hitman. He's chasing him, shooting at him. And Cage falls onto the middle of a road and this, this you know beautiful Chevy or whatever it just almost runs him over. The car, car almost hits him right in the face and Hopper gets out and then they get together and share a drink and then you know the ruse keeps building so there's it's just full of double crosses it has uh it's such a fun tone uh it's shot uh, shot beautifully, expressionistically, but it's um, almost feels like it's in real time, which is one of my favorite things about it. It Feels like there's no fat on it. It's going from scene to scene to scene. There's no like you know slow fade to the next day. It's just happening in the time we're experiencing it in it, uh, and all the characters are having so much fun. It, it reminds me a bit of True Romance in that way, where it's just really uh, every character is having fun. They're all very tropey. Like this is a this is a purposely nostalgic noir not one that's trying to avoid the cliches it's it's exploring the cliches having fun with the cliches uh and i'd I'd say in terms of just pure entertainment probably the best film on my list for that kind of uh, uh that kind of a neo-noir
1: this is a damned entertaining movie
0: yeah it's, it is a really good one it's and, sh- and the other thing i didn't mention which is hugely important it's shot uh in in uh, it's non-urban so it's sh- in wyoming and it's uh, in a small town called red rock west so uh to me probably my favorite kind of noir if i'm really honest are ones that don't take place in the city even though i love a great city movie and that's where you know 90% of them took place uh border towns and things like that oh get me right to my yeah heart they just they're so interesting because they like, i think they're seedier they always tend to be a little sleazier um so with my pairing uh and that's just that's a terrific movie um I wanted to explore the non-urban noir connection and go for another film. I you know I I played early on with the idea of Lady from Shanghai because the story is basically the same. You know, it's it's same kind of drifter and same kind of double cross with a wife and and it just it, it something didn't sit right with it as a pairing for me and I went with something a little more obscure that has just really kind of popped up in the last couple of years for people uh because of Criterion and it is it is really a brilliant uh, just unusual film um, that's Ride the Pink Horse. Knife is good. It's easy to fix. I got three knives in me. When you're young, everybody sticks knife in you. Oh, uh, my. Yeah, 1947. Is this going to come up on your list?
1: It might. Oh, that's it awesome. It really that well might. That could be exciting. So it's a great pick, man.
0: Well, you know, and it only got on there last minute, so it'll be fun to see where you pair it. Uh, director Robert Montgomery... Uh, this was one I had never even heard of, and I knew it was on uh, a lot of cult kind of enthusiasts uh, were fans of it, but it was really hard to see a good copy and I saw it maybe last year or the year before um on criterion and it it kind of floored me because it was so unusual in a lot of ways, and it was so much more layered and culturally intriguing see that uh, Robert Montgomery is the actor star uh, he was a uh, you know pretty well known actor who turned into this very idiosyncratic weird director in a sense. Uh, his first person shot Lady of the Lake is a movie that's just a complete misfire for me. Like it's one of those movies I watched when I was young. I was so excited to see a film all in first person perspective. And I just couldn't stand it. I was just like, what the hell?" Like it it feels so artificial and flat because of this gimmick, uh, you know, like the new maniac, the remake of maniac that I know a lot of people love. I have a similar kind of issue with it because, uh, and it's, it seems pretty obvious, but without a reaction shot in a movie, I feel like that's where the emotion is centered. It's not on the person saying something; it's on the person reacting to the person saying something. That's where you feel something. So, if you strip that out of a whole movie and you're just seeing things, I feel like you've kind of limited what what it can be. And and that movie didn't really work for me, so I wasn't all that excited when I sort of write the Pink Pores. And it uses a couple moments like that, but it is uh, it's just such a fascinating movie. It, it's one of those old noir classics that I think really. Um, casts a spell over you because it's so unusual it's set in a so my connection here is the non-urban noir it's set in a, a new mexico border mex with mexico town um he's a world war a world war ii vet called lucky gagan uh comes to town and and the thing about these you think about the role mexico played to criminals in that time it's like this uh, place you want to go <laughs> you want to disappear to it's like a positive thing to disappear in Mexico whereas when we come to consider it now it's it's you know it's it, it seems to be the reverse that uh, the trend is to come here uh, in this film he goes down there to try to find this gangster who had killed his uh, good friend of his and so it's you know more or less a revenge film but it gets so complicated once he gets there uh, by the culture of the town and the town is going through like a fiesta um and that he ends up befriending this um really uh larger than life personality called Pancho, who uh runs a, a kid's carousel of these uh carousel horses and he also starts to fall for like kind of fall in a, in a tough guy way for this local very innocent uh girl pilo uh and the performance of Pancho, uh the actor is um what's his name uh, Thomas Gomez was actually nominated for the uh, – he's the first Hispanic to get an Oscar nomination for it, which I didn't know before today. I didn't
1: know uh, that
0: either. Yeah, very cool. You know, And he his performance is incredible. It's so warm. And so what happens is you've got a guy who basically goes down for a simple, you know, simple, even though albeit complex, uh, gangster he has to rub out. And instead kind of – instead of just exploiting the location as a backdrop, which I think most movies would do in that time period – it becomes about the culture and about the town, and he—it's almost like he's kind of falling in love or falling, you know, becoming a part of it. And I think that's very unusual, really interesting. It's shot by Russell Metty, who uh, went on a couple years later to shoot *Touch of Evil*. So it's almost like he kind of—he, this was his on his way to mastering the border town, because I think *Touch of Evil* is the best ever made when it comes to border town uh, movies. And uh, it, it's a really—I don't want to say too much more about the plot because it—it is complicated but it's also got a real innocence to the relationships uh, and it's a lot of fun. And the pink horse is kind of a esoteric kind of element to a great title, but it has got one line I had to repeat, which was just, I think I love it when he's talking about the one femme fatale woman in it. And he just calls, he's kind of talking about woman in general and he's just like dead fish with a lot of perfume on, on him, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was pretty great.
1: Well, yeah, it's got a script by Ben Hecht and Charles Lederer, And those guys ain't slouches. Those guys yeah, can write.
0: did a bunch of Hitchcock films uh, Ben Heck did.
1: Yeah, and Heck did, uh, I think, his Go Friday. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like, so that sort of back and forth kind of repartee that he brings is definitely evident here. It's, I, I just think Montgomery is such a lovable grouch. Like, he's sort of, like, he's he's very direct and sort of uh, brash. Um and unsophisticated in a lot of ways. I mean, but still street smart. He toned
0: down his charm for this one. Oh, and I yeah. think that's what really helps because I think sometimes he came off in other films as super cocky uh, and and just almost too charming. And in this, he's like obviously on purpose, like really stripped it out. And I mean, I really think this is one of the, those great movies that uh, underseen movies that, you know, Criterion is going to make it a lot more accessible, but I don't know if people are still necessarily seeing it.
1: Yeah, I think I was blown away when they announced that, and it, and I was so excited because I had seen it, uh, I think off a, like a cable taping, like Turner Classics or something, mm-hmm. and loved it immediately. Um, maybe I actually saw it at a Noir City. I might have seen it years ago at a Noir City at um at the Egyptian, and um, it just immediately was like, wow, this thing is so special and so unique, um, that. I, I it immediately became one of my favorites. Like I said, and so when they announced it, I it just was out of nowhere because the movie had never been available on home video proper, and suddenly it's on Blu-ray from Criterion. So I, that was one of my favorite releases of recent memory from them. Actually,
0: it's a re- it's a really warm film in a sense. It's a some noir can be really cold edged, but there's something because of his relationships with Pancho. I I I, f- I feel a lot watching that, and I've got a w- funny note just in my. In my thing on my notes when I was making it, it just said like a border town Casablanca <laughs> which is kind of funny when you think about it it's not quite as romantic obviously as Casablanca but when I think about it it's like yeah it is it's kind of like in a this weird town where all these connections and all these different people at different strata of intrigue and trying to turn on each other FBI and you know so it's yeah, if that hasn't sold you, I, I hope you give that one a shot. Um, and I think those two would actually pair really well because they're not too similar, but they're both—you'd have that kind of border town uh, vibe and, and different types of entertainment.
1: Yeah, great pick, great pick. Um, my number five is a little movie called Narc.
0: The only thing you need to know about me is that I'm going to bag the mothers that killed Mike. If that means breaking every point of procedure. Then they're broke. <laughs> It's almost impossible. You're this
1: dumb. From 2002, um, and I I remember seeing this movie for the first time and being absolutely made breathless by the opening sequence, which I still think is I don't, for me. It's like I guess the equivalent is is like that storming the beaches scene in Saving Private Ryan, mm-hmm. but like the the stripped down you know, undercover cop version of that, because basically it's Jason Patrick in this furious, like foot chase running through this, um, sort of a uh, ghetto ish neighborhood, um, hopping fences, chasing this dude with him, uh, who's got uh, some, some, some syringes and he, he, you know, takes down a guy with the syringes and then ends up grabbing a kid on the playground. And you're just like, Oh my God, this guy is going to kill this kid. Um, and Patrick like shoots the guy, and there's another incident that happens during this that's that ends up sort of putting him in trouble with the with his superiors, um, and he's suspended. And anyway, the, the 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 whole sequence though is is one of those handheld sequences that I I'm half and half on. Sometimes I love a, a good handheld sequence, and sometimes I just find it annoying. But I feel like this is done in a way that really conveys the urgency and the anxiety and the just incredible tension of, of this situation, you know, the unpredictability of it. Um, so it's a really great opening to a movie that then sort of chills out and becomes much more of a procedural, um, in the best possible way. I mean, the basic idea is that Patrick's character is a former undercover cop who is working in sort of drug areas. Uh, and so they, the, his, the powers that be basically want to re-involve him in a case of a murdered cop because they feel like he may be able to get information that some other cops might not be able to get because he still has some connections from being undercover for so long. And then, you know, so you come to find out like what, you know, his being undercover for so long did to him and his family and things like that. Some things that they don't always touch on in this kind of movie. Um, And then you, then you meet, uh, Ray Liotta's character, who is the partner of the dead cop, and he so so Jason Patrick is partnered with him to try and solve this case, and it's a very interesting dynamic between the two of them because Liotta Liotta is like one of my favorite like should you trust him or shouldn't you trust him kind of actors. Yeah, he really is. You know what I mean? Like because he's almost always. Ends up probably not being the most trustworthy guy, but he has like a certain loyalty and a charisma about him that makes him likable. And I don't know. You so gotta
0: you gotta question the judgment of anyone who will eat his own brains.
1: <laughs> this is true. <laughs> um. So. So. Anyway, it's just a great dynamic between Patrick and and um Ray Liotta, Um. And and there's just sort of a greater mystery that's unfolding, like what actually happened to this cop. Um. And so, I don't know. I I think it's maybe my favorite. Um. Carnahan for Christ's sake
0: yeah 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 Joe Carnahan
1: yeah Carnahan's I think it's probably my favorite of his films and I like a lot of his stuff um but it's
0: because of this movie that I am deeply disappointed that he dropped out on uh Death Wish remake because I'm with you man NARC is a badass piece of filmmaking I remember and I actually am a really I actually almost had three uh, including this one uh two other Jason Patrick neo-noirs almost made this list because I also I'm a big big fan of Rush
1: Oh yeah, yeah.
0: And and a big fan of the what's the desert one with Bruce Dern, um the Jim Thompson uh Ooh, it's, uh, it's another desert noir from the nineties. Uh, and it's just slipping my, my mind, but, uh, yeah, there's, you know, there's all these, he's just one of those actors that I think is, I think he's really underrated. His intensity is so high that I think maybe some people see know struggle working with him. I've, you know, always heard, uh, you know, but he's, he's, I think he's one of those guys who's always bringing it and always, always bummed that, I mean, your friends and neighbors, he's amazing in that film. Oh my gosh. It's one of the great to me, one of the great performances, but, um, yeah, I'm with you, man. I think this is a great, great movie. And Carnahan's, like, it's just kinetic. Yeah. Uh, and I can't, I got to rewatch it because I can't remember the story. I just remember their kind of relationship and the intensity of that. And, and that Leot is always, like, a little scary.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, he definitely is in this. And uh, he establishes it real early. You're just like, yeah, This he's like, basically, I'll do anything to get this guy. Breaking the rules, I don't care. So, yeah, it's definitely one of those things where I I kind of like stories of cops that, I mean it sounds bad. I, I don't like the idea that cops do um illegal things in the course of their work and that they you know injure people and and you know shoot people. All that stuff is not cool to me, but in the context Well
0: except unless you're Nico, <laughs> he's above the law.
1: Exactly. <laughs> um but I mean in the context of a movie like this it creates a nice tension because you're like when when the, these kind of cops come into a room with somebody, you're like, what's going to happen here? Is this person going to end up dead? I, I don't even know who this is, but I don't want them to kill anybody. And so there's a sense of that tension um, that that I always like in a movie like this, and, and he really carries that through the whole movie. There's just this sense of dread and... I don't know, for me, like I didn't necessarily... Anyway, I don't want to give anything else away. Um, Well, I think
0: it goes back to uh, what you're talking about, that feeling that you respond to. I think it goes back to our revenge episode, that revenge, uh, vigilante, justice. I think these are things that cinema does really well because it's part of our fantasy. It's not what we really want to happen in in real life, but I think it does tap into what we want to see happen in in these situations. We want characters who are these like cop characters are gray and are doing things, maybe bad things, just like Batman. I think it's very similar to our love of Batman. And I think, I think it's very much tied into what movies can, the dream, you know?
1: Yeah. No, and I, 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 do, I also like stories of cops that are um, trying to redeem themselves in mm-hmm. some way or have been burnt out on the job and um, are able to get a handle on some new case that may reinvigorate their love of the work and um, kind of turn them around, or at least you hope. And that ends up sort of being my connecting tissue between this movie and the movie I wanted to pair it with, which is Nicholas Ray's On Dangerous Ground. Jim!
0: Oh. You know what Brawley told you when he put you back on the job? What kind of a job
1: is this anyway?
0: Garbage. That's all we
1: handled. Oh, cool. Um, Which kind of goes into your, like, non urban noir territory. Mm -hmm. Um. But but for me, like I said, this is much more about a cop that's burnt out, which Jason Patrick's character is in um, NARC. I mean, there's a point when they bring him in to try and get him involved with this case, and he's just basically like, fuck off, no, I'm not doing it. And he walks out of the room on, on the committee that's trying to hire him. And so he's clearly... And then, like I said, stuff comes out about his personal life with his wife and things. things are not well with this guy. So... Similarly, in On Dangerous Ground, Robert Ryan plays a cop who's been sort of beat down or made quite cynical um, by working with a lot of, you know, he says garbage at one point. He's like, we we deal with garbage. You know, he's talking Mm -hmm. about the criminal element that he has to deal with. And he ends up being kind of a violent guy, a guy that... That is so violent, in fact, that his superiors have to warn him repeatedly about it. And eventually he's put on a case out of town uh, as kind of a punishment, but also kind of a like, we need to get him out of the city and away from us for a little while. So the idea is that he is a city cop who's put on this case that's um, it's it's in a, a murderer that's on the loose in a remote sort of mountain area. Um sort of snowy woodsy area, and um so he ends up going out there trying to find the guy, and he's dealing with um the person who's murdered's father, played by Ward Bond, who I have always loved as a great character actor, um trying to keep that guy under control so that if they do find the guy, he doesn't kill him straight out um and then he ends up running into Idol Pino, who's this blind woman that lives up in this in this area and sort of. It's not it's not I don't want to say it's not sentimental. It's it's not sappy in a way that I feel is is not earned or it's not disingenuous in a certain way like he starts to fall for her and that sort of becomes the thing that this this case and her start to sort of shift his perspective a little bit make him understand that the world is not as awful a place as maybe he thought it was. But when mm-hmm. I say it like that, it sounds super cheesy, but it's not like that. Cause Nick Ray is a very,
0: yeah, he's not sentimental in his, in the way he portrays things, no. even if it has a sentimental core, That's why it makes him a great director.
1: Yeah, absolutely. He, ha- there's a sort of poetic nature to, and a, and a melancholy to a lot of the work that I, that he does. And, and this is no exception. It's just a really strong performance by Robert Ryan, who I, I think is, I don't, I don't know. Underrated is not the right word, but I feel like, you know, everybody knows Robert Mitchum, and and everybody knows Humphrey Bogart, and these other actors. And I feel like Robert Ryan is a really solid guy who is not as he's not as charismatic in in the same way as some of those other guys. Um, but he's very compelling, and he's just a little more serious in a lot of the roles that he takes. I think that maybe makes him not quite as endeared to uh, all of us as as some of these other actors. But I think he's really great in this. And um, there's a really nice Warner Archive Blu-ray of it um, available. So,
0: yeah, I got to rewatch that. That one's I went through a big, you know, Nick Ray's one of my you know top five canon directors for me, and so that was one I saw when I first started getting into him. So it's been like probably 15 years. But if I was doing my top five noirs, I think I'd probably have two Ray films in my top five almost. So like you know, there's there's, so I got to I got to rewatch that one because that's I'm not as familiar with it.
1: That's great.
0: Um. Very cool. Yeah, my uh, number four is uh, kind of a wild card, kind of my wild card pick because I've only ever seen it once and it came on TV and it left a real impression on me because I had no expectations of it and I couldn't rewatch. It. I, I, I watched a new trailer and there is a new Blu ray out on it. Um, this is a film. Uh, I mentioned The Hitcher at one point. Same writer, Cohen and Tate. Cohen, he kills people for money. <laughs> Tate would happily do it for fun. They've been teamed up to get Travis Knight away from his family and the FBI and deliver him alive to the mob. By Eric Red, 1988. Uh, this is, and I've actually ended up having two Roy Scheider villain movies make my five here so that's something to look forward to because you know roy obviously had a career as you know playing the hero uh you know he's brody uh but these two roles i i really love this this is one of my besides sorcerer this is probably my favorite uh other shider for performance because it's such an interesting one uh basically the movie opens like Literally a peck and paw film. It is a gangbusters opening. It is just a family in a rural town, uh, you know, uh, we're sitting down for dinner, uh, and suddenly two uh, mob, you know, hitmen uh, basically bust into the door and just blow everyone in the family away. Except for a little boy, uh, and it's shot like a peck and pile violent scene where there's slow motion and people are literally, you know, being shot and flying ten feet. It's brutal, uh, and uh, they take the they take basically the job. The gist of the movie is that the kid was in witness relocation because he had witnessed a mob hit and these two gangsters are there to take him back to uh, you know so they can sort him out I can't remember if they're meant to actually kill him per se straight away or just transport him somewhere so he doesn't testify uh, and then it becomes uh, a Brian Sauer classic <laughs> child, a child in peril movie uh, which is really kind of wacky uh, and it's uh, Roy Scheider's playing one of the hitmen and he's got like a trench coat and he's a little older and he wears a uh, he has a hearing aid and it makes Makes him just a really interesting character. He's the reserved, he's basically about to retire. This is pretty much his last gig. But he's teamed up with a young Adam Baldwin uh, from your your pick, My Bodyguard, uh, which I still haven't seen yet, um, who is off the charts crazy in this he's like the sociopath he's like the young brash I'll just shoot anything that moves type character I will admit when watching this the, the one niggle I had with the movie was his performance at times was just too big and you know it's it doesn't necessarily fit as well but it makes sense to the character it, but I just remember when I was watching it it was the one thing I kept thinking ah, he's just you know it was almost spoiling the tone the spell a little but um, the it's such a simple setup but what I like about it is just so direct and the way uh, Eric read. I'm actually quite a fan of almost all his movies, but they're all they're all fairly nihilistic, and uh, you know, just to the point. There's no bullshit. Like good classic noir, there's no no room for bullshit. Um, so these two characters are driving the kid. The, at one point, the kid gets away and goes off with the FBI, and then they pull over and shoot the FBI agent, and then take the kid again. And so it's a great it's a great back and forth. But uh, man, all you really need to know about this movie is that the last thirty seconds is. It's just unbelievable. Like where this movie ends, you will be left thinking about it for a very long time. Uh, Roy Scheider has a line at the end of this movie where I just looked at my friend who I saw it with and ne- our jaws were on the ground. and We couldn't believe that, that's, that somebody could end a movie in that way. So if that isn't enough to make you want to watch this, nothing will be. It, it's really terrific. Uh, and it's just a lot of fun. And it really does knock us Besides the fact that I know Arrow's put out a blue. I don't know if, they're, if there's... Sound Factory metal. too. Shop Factory you know besides that I don't ever hear this movie being talked about spoken of really and I think it's a lot of fun I think this is a movie that people would have a lot of fun with and and I connected it uh, in a way With something that is a smaller, uh, one of the much lesser-known noirs that I've – there's two or three noirs that I've just always had a real soft spot for. I never – they don't come up a lot. One I couldn't fit into the list. uh, But this one I really love the idea of pairing with. Uh, And the connection isn't thematic at all. The connection is that both these uh, films are shot almost like Westerns. They have the no bullshit of a Western, the violence of a Western, and and some of the uh, morals and kind of concepts. Uh, This is uh, Bud Buttocker's The Killer is Loose.
1: Fool wanted to know
0: why, since you had killed his wife, your wife should be alive. He said if it was the last thing he ever did, he was going to bust out and kill Lila. He didn't say it once. He said it over and over. That's how he planned to settle with you. He'll still take you if he can't reach her. But Sam,
1: she's the number one target.
0: Nineteen fifty-six. I'm a big fan of this movie, and it was always I saw I saw a print of it once, and that's what like fifteen years ago. And it really, it made an impression from its absolute simplicity and it's brutal minimalism, directness, uh, and both of these films have that. And uh, this film is really simple. It's basically uh, just opens with a, uh, a bank robbery. Uh, a bank's been robbed. Uh, and Wendell Corey, who uh, is playing like the bank manager, he has these big, thick glasses, and he plays a character called Liam Poole. Uh, Wendell mm-hmm. Corey, for those who don't know, is uh, from one of your Hitchcock picks back in yep. the day, Rear Window. He's the uh, detective buddy of Jimmy Stewart's. Great actor. But in this, this is like my favorite of his performance is because it's really unnerving. He's very very mild-mannered, quiet, uh, but it comes off, it's kind of kind of a scary performance. Uh, he basically is an inside job. Uh, the cops figure it out that he was an inside man on this robbery. Joseph Cotton's the investigating detective and they burst down his door and just start shooting in the dark and unwittingly they kill Poole's wife. And he is like, just devastated because his wife wasn't in on the crime. She didn't even know... And he's really devastated. He gets put, uh, you know, he gets sentenced. And he looks at Joseph Cotton's wife at the sentencing and just kind of stares at her in this kind of psychopathic way. And eventually he gets released for good time. And then the story from that moment on becomes uh, him basically swearing that he will kill Cotton's wife and he's going to come for her, whatever happens. And so it becomes a cop, uh, cop killer cat and mouse kind of game but it's very simple like it's one of those movies that you know but you like you know you're the, you're the, you're a big budak fan in terms of his uh westerns and he only you know, shot a couple of noirs i think this and legs diamond uh but it it has all the same hallmarks it really is the same kind of movie uh and and then there's some great scenes there's a great scene between the two woman characters in this who are just both kind of you know domestic housewives but the way one of them just turns on the other uh and call, you know calling her out as selfish because she's not supporting the joseph Cotton character and it's a great scene and there's, it really, I think it's actually not a bad starting spot for Boddicker, uh, before going to the Westerns, uh, cause it is still really entertaining, has a great ending. And that's the other, other reason I wanted to connect these two films is they both have kind of a gangbusters ending. They both end with high points, uh, to the narrative whereas some films kind of peter out.
1: Yeah. Those, those are both great picks. I'm a fan of both movies, both uh, very fatalistic. Yeah. And that's, and that's something I'll bring up, uh, in this next bit here because, um, Well, let me me just do real quick. The first one, um, my neo-noir, is definitely fatalistic. Uh, My pairing, we can make a case against that. But um, my number four is Hickey and Boggs.
0: i got to get a bigger gun. I can't hit nothing. How are we going to explain this one? This time we need
1: a lawyer. Mm. Which is from 1972, directed by Robert Culp. His only film that he ever directed sadly um it stars him and Bill Cosby, who were um a big deal because of I spy the t v show um so this is but those sort of expecting i spy um would be sorely disappointed because this is a very dour and downbeat and gritty uh film noir uh and it's with a script from Walter Hill, so you know that he's he doesn't mess around. Um, and so basically the two of them play this, these, this detective duo, um, and they are put on the case of a missing woman, but it's never as simple as a single case. There's almost always, you know, with the good noir, there's almost always, you know, intertwining people and, you know, things in this case, there's a suitcase full of money and anyway, so it's, it's one that was not on my radar at all until I saw the I think it was in it Cool News's coverage of one of Tarantino's film festivals in Austin, he had picked it for I don't know if it was like a crime movie night or something like that. He's a big fan of this one, and if you watch it, you can totally feel that it's just it. It's it's an LA movie. It's dark. Um, Where's the big
0: shoot? Is it the Coliseum that they have the big shoot Or It's they, one of the sports arenas.
1: Yeah, it's uh, where did they have the um. Olympics. The Olympics? Yeah, yeah, I think it's the Coliseum. Yeah, I yeah. think you're right. It's yeah, fantastic. That's me. a great sequence. I mean, there's, it's just really, really well w- written. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of like, there's little bits of personal stuff that they put in that's really great about both characters. And then, th- they're, th- obviously, their dynamic together is great. I mean, they'd already worked with each other. And I just think Culp is just a fantastic actor. Like, he's another one of those, like Robert Ryan in a lot of ways. A a guy that I think is a little bit underrated, Um, but
0: it's also easily the best thing Cosby did, in my opinion, like the kind of I mean, you know, when uh, obviously with everything going on with Bill Cosby now, it's it's a shame when something tarnishes uh, a film. But everyone else was thinking about his TV show. But I, I instantly thought about this movie because it's such a grounded, realistic portrayal of two cops. They feel like they've so lived in the way their reactions to things it's i would have watched that as a tv show forever if that was it no it's almost like the original true detective
1: yeah no totally i mean these guys are they there's definitely a sense of old school film noir detectives uh but like like you say grounded lived in cynical um they're they're broke you know like at the beginning there's a conversation with the two of them at a bar and Culp is asking Cosby, Did you pay the phone? You know? Well, we can't pay the phone, we can only pay the answering service. <laughs> you know, it's just like they have no money, so they're desperate, you know. Um it it's so it's just really a phenomenal for me underrated and underseen movie. There is a Kino Lorber Blu ray for this one. Um I ne- this is another one that was at the time I heard about it first, um, it was very hard to see. It was there were bootlegs it it would show up on Turner Classic Movies every once in a while it would show up at the Egyptian every once in a while um but yeah it's become obviously a lot easier to see now and i highly recommend the blu-ray it looks great um but yeah it's just one of those movies that when you watch it uh you feel the walter hill in it and you know i don't know it, i just it's one that's really stuck with me um my pairing is Oh, and I should mention that the supporting cast includes Rosalind Cash, Michael Moriarty and unfortunately, a very small role, James Woods, and Vincent Gardinia, among others. So there's a lot of great character faces in it that I think always elevates a movie like this.
0: Um, it seems to be a, a bit of a hallmark of a lot of these neo-noirs is just really excellent casting of a like a wide variety of people getting to pop up and i get the feeling it's because these actors really want to pop up even if it's a small role they they love being part of a movie like this because movies don't exist like this anymore in the traditional filmmaking
1: yeah it's tricky it's funny and 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 even against um traditional noir i had a little trouble pairing this one um, because it is sort of so downbeat and fatalistic, and I ended up going sort of, the, not the opposite direction, but I went with the Maltese Falcon. I'm
0: going to tell you an astounding story. The story of the Maltese Falcon. 600 years,
1: the Falcon has carried the mystery of a fabulous wealth under its grotesque wings. Which is obviously okay. a huge movie everybody's aware of, or it's, it seems like it, but one that, like I was saying, you can make a case against it being a full on noir in that i feel like sam spade is never he's not a totally fatalistic character um you know he's not somebody that totally sabotages himself he's always kind of on top of things um you know so i feel like the best noirs are deal with detectives or cops that think they know what they're doing and end up in over their head and either end up dead or in rough shape you know and and not to spoil the ending of the Maltese Falcon, but it doesn't exactly end that way. Um, And Bogart is just too powerful a persona. I feel like he certainly plays a great noir type fatalistic character in, in a lonely place. But I feel like there's few performances where he isn't still soup kind of super cool Bogart, you know? Um, but anyway, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. And rewatching it, I was reminded why. I mean, again, Bogart is great as uh, Sam Spade. Um, he is just one of your great prototypical de- detectives. Um, but then you've got Sidney Greenstreet and Peter Lorre. Um, and Green Street in his... A little f-
0: bit of Casablanca. <laughs>
1: oh, totally. You know what's <laughs> crazy to me, though, is that... And I always forget about this, but Green Street didn't start acting until he was 63 years old. Wow. And he's sixty three. This is his first movie. He he acts for eight years and wow. then he's done. And wow. think so about many roles. Uh, exactly. Think about how iconic an actor he is. He uh-huh. acted for eight years and he started at sixty-three. That just blows my mind. But him as the fat man, Casper Gutman, in this movie, is phenomenal. I mean, he just destroys. He just he he bursts onto the scene and you're instantly like, Who is this guy? he is a character literal and you know, anyway, I I've just blown away by him. And Peter Lorre is great too. I, I like Peter Lorre a little bit more in um, Casablanca, but both of them are great in that, in that movie too, obviously. Um, but there's a lot of other great, uh, you know, supporting characters, Alicia cook jr. I'd never seen uh, in a movie. And he plays like one of the sort of heavy gunman type dudes for um, Gutman in this. And, I don't know it's, I also
0: really like San Francisco as a setting I yeah. always have For uh, noir and you know obviously from Vertigo, Vertigo. But I, this is this is my friend uh, The same friend I was just talking about watching Cohen and Tate with He moved into the building uh, Up in I don't know if it's Telegraph Hill or whatever But it had a little plaque saying this is where Sam Spade's office was
1: Oh wow
0: Outside his building just as an t- apartment I always thought that was the coolest thing
1: That's so cool uh,
0: I like I like that story so much. I named my kid Dashil after yeah. the writer Dashil Hammett. That was that was that story. That just I've always loved that story. It's a great um, story.
1: I mean, it's a great you know um, plot that twists and turns on itself, and you know, I I, I don't know. There's just great bits ab- about it. I just remember like Mary Astor comes into the uh, their office and gives them a story about her sister, and you know it's clearly not what's going on. And, yeah. But I love that Bogart's ex- explanation to her later is like, oh, we didn't believe you. We believed your $200. You know, <laughs> you didn't, yeah. we knew you weren't telling the truth, but you were paying us enough to, to make it okay. Basically. Um, just that sort of setup, but, but yeah, he's just such a weather detective and, um, it's such a great Bogart performance. It's erratic in parts. It's oddly, um, explosively energetic in certain bits and I don't know there's just something about it and, and just the way that you know you can't trust anybody uh, in that in the movie um, I don't know I've always loved just how, how it plays out ultimately
0: but yeah it's a great movie
1: like I said not fatalistic necessarily but a detective noir that I thought somehow I don't know I, there's some scenes in like Hickey and Boggs when they're sitting in their office together and it reminded me it clearly is emulating from that sort of Place so I, that felt like a, maybe a tenuous connection, but one that I f- I felt like the two would play together.
0: I th- yeah, and I, I always think the gut pairing is the best way to go. You know, repairing these movies from our gut, from some memory or some trace that's left, and that's that's better than getting two on the nose. Yeah. So that's good. That's a good one. Um. Well, when we came up with the neo noir thing, one of the first films that was in my mind that I wanted to rewatch, like I was like, oh, I, I got to rewatch that because I'm pretty sure it's gonna be on my list because I always remember it being pretty bad shit. Um. And I ordered the Twilight Time Blu-ray, but it didn't come in time to rewatch. So luckily, it was streaming on Amazon in HD. Uh. And that is Romeo is Bleeding, the Peter Medak 1990. Film. They think somebody's working both sides.
1: You broke out the deal.
0: You don't make the deals, Jack. I make the deals. And you're in until I say otherwise. <laughs> I want
1: Mona De Markov dead. I won't do that. Coffee. So you're the big hoodlum. Personally, I don't see it. Keep looking.
0: Uh, I like to call this film "The Passion of Gary Oldman" um, <laughs> because it's basically Gary Oldman suffering more than any actor has probably ever suffered in a movie. Uh, it is one of those noir characters where you're like, "Oh Jesus, man, poor bastard!" Like, uh, it is, it's, it's really got an incredible energy to it. It's—it's—it has this really delicate balance that, like Red Rock West, it is definitely an homage. Uh, to noir. It's a you know New York City uh, cl- you know classic cop uh, getting an over his head crooked cop film. but um, it hits almost all of the noir tropes in the film, but it never gets crushed by any of them. and what it does with them is it takes every single trope, And then pushes it to eleven, so it has this really modern energy to it. You wouldn't see a classic, you know, fifties film made like this because everything is heightened—the sexuality, the uh, emotion, the violence. It's all at this very intense peak. Um, Peter Medak, you know, made the Changeling and a number of other really interesting movies. Um, And it's from '93, and so this is when Gary Oldman was kind of. you know I think the prof- no the professional hadn't been made yet uh that's still a few years off, but he's still kind of just starting to kind of uh make an appearance in America and almost as a leading man and I think not long after that it became pretty clear that he was more of you know great character actor but uh the gist of it is a he's he's a married cop, uh, who has you know a girlfriend on the side. Juliet Lewis is his like kind of bimbo uh, nurse. Uh, he uh, Annabelle Sciarra is at home. You know uh, they have a, kind of a loving but seems a little you know uh, distant relationship. And while he's doing that, he has uh, as he's a cop, he, his other gig is to uh, basically tell uh, the mob when a witness who has been relocated is, is waiting trial, you know, being held up in a in a hotel room where they are, and then the mob come in and kill that person. He doesn't have to do the hit. He just gets bit, 60 grand put in his little box. He buries that money in the backyard, so he keeps... As they say in the film, I really like it. It's, um, if this was a noir novel, I think it'd be really successful. They keep saying he kept feeding the hole; like he just kept feeding the hole, and the hole was hungry, and the hole continually wanted more money. There's never enough. So he's he's this cop character. He, he's doing that. He's going along with it. Michael Wincott is his gangster um, contact, but not the actual head of the gang, uh, which is Roy Scheider uh, playing the the head mob boss, which you get about halfway through the film. Uh, but basically, they get to a point where they actually ask him to make a hit. Him himself and uh you know rub out uh, a character who was one of their hitmen who, who, who's actually a woman uh who gives one of the performances that like you know right now if you tell me let's make a list of the 10 most batshit performances of the 90s uh lena olin in this movie is on a different level and what i love about it and what makes this film uh so great is that instead of just making her a femme fatale which sometimes were great roles, but other times no different than any typecasting of woman in Hollywood, really, like, oh yeah, you're you sexy seductress, and then you turn and punish the man. There's not in this she is pitched as a badass one of the best hitmen around, almost too dangerous to live. Characters before you even meet her, then you meet her and she uses her sexuality to basically uh, manipulate you to try to get free. So he he he's meant to kill her at one point. Uh, they come, she comes up with a plan that he could fake her death to try to tell the uh, to tell Roy and kind of let her off. But their interactions in this movie, there's about three major sequences where uh, it's Lena Olin and Gary Oldman, and she is just off the charts bonkers. There is. A violent scene that is the image that made me want to rewatch the film where her legs and her high heels are wrapped around his neck. She's in the backseat and he's driving his car at like 100 miles an hour under the New York bridge or, you know, overpass subways going above him. And it is so intense. And she's like screaming and strangling him to death with her legs and it is fucking with a giant smile on her face like almost sexual pleasure as she's doing it. It is totally she would make the ultimate Bond villain. Let me put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) It is such a fun movie. Uh, it's super kind of it has that um, you know, schmaltzy romance to it as well, where he's like dreaming of getting out at the certain point, like his goal is to survive and then reunite with his wife, who he's kind of told, get out of here because the mob are coming for me. Uh, I won't tell you any of the other you know, interactions because actually has some really fun twists. Um, but it holds up remarkably well. And so I'm really excited that I just, I just took advantage of that twilight time sale and, uh, the blu-rays coming and it's, it's, it's a keeper for sure. Uh, and I can't wait to, uh, it's one, it's, it's the kind of movie that's really exciting to pass on to other people because it's a good entry point into those kind of movies because it is really analyzing all those trips. It's very purposeful, but it plays with them, you know? And I think that's what you got to do. You got to have fun. I thought drive did the same thing. Um, are uh, you familiar with this one?
1: Yeah, it's funny. I, I hadn't thought about it in a long time. And then you mentioned that scene in the car, the car, and suddenly I, I remember that. It's a weird sense memory of that scene, and but I don't remember the movie as well. And I know I remember liking it. I saw it on VHS now 20 years ago or something, but...
0: I must admit, I was it was gonna go on my list, and I was like, oh, I think I got to rewatch it because even though I remember her being amazing, I just couldn't remember if the rest of it's great. You will, you're gonna love it. It, it will be like one of those ones you revisit and go, oh shit, all right, this nice. is this is a classic little, um, because the scenes are too, it's so great too. He's a lot of it's shot at uh, Coney Island, so he'll be walking through Coney Island or being chased through like the, you know, the uh, some of the amusement park. It's it's just it's really a great thing. And I so for my pairing with this one it's a perfect pairing and it's not even my favorite film by this director, even though it's a great film. Um, one of the best things about this show if, and it doesn't happen all the time, but, uh, if you get a chance to watch a movie you hadn't seen before, and this is one I hadn't seen. So I was looking at movies to pair it with. I had a couple ideas and then I sort of stumbled upon a description of an Otto Priminger film I hadn't seen. And I am a big Preminger film. Uh, Laura's not going to be on my list today, but I think it's one of the best things ever made. Um, and uh, so this one I wasn't familiar with called Where the Sidewalk Ends. You don't hate hoodlums. You like to beat them up. You get fun out of it. You like to read about yourself in the newspapers as the tough cop who isn't afraid to wade in anywhere. Your job is to detect criminals, not punish them. Nice. And this is a reuniting of, uh, you know, Dana Andrews and Jean Tierney, both from Laura. Uh, but this film is very different from Laura. Uh, you know, it's not a mystery, uh, and it is. It, it's per, it's actually really a, a thematically perfect pair with Romeo's Bleeding, because uh, it's uh, Dane Andrews plays uh, Detective um, Dixon, and at the start of the film, he's kind of been. You're a good cop, but you're too violent, and you're always roughing up the people, and you're on you're on notice. Basically, you know, you gotta you gotta watch it. And that day, that same night, he Dane Andrews guys. You know, he's kind of he basically his his. Uh, existential issue at stake is that his father was a criminal and he's a cop trying to do something you know with his life to you know in direct relation to the fact that his, his dad was a cop i uh, was a it was a criminal and so other criminals like and the main gangster who's in this film kind of always make reference to you, you know your dad was such a great guy why you got to be a heel kind of thing and it really irks him and at a key moment Early on the film, he there's a, there's a, a murder, and this gangster is kind of implicated. He goes looking for the suspect, uh, and he finds this guy, and he punches him in the face, and the guy drops dead. And he doesn't know what the fuck happened. Later on, you find out the guy had a war injury and had a plate in his head, and that's why he died. So... But in that moment, he's just been told he was on notice, and so he covers it up, and he hides the body, and he pretends he didn't see the guy to his partner, and he basically starts – the walls start slowly closing in just like they do for – Gary Oldman's character in Romeo's is bleeding, and it's really a film that just—it's—and it's all pretty much real time. It's set in a very short period of time, pretty much the long night of the investigation, um, and it's—and it's all shot in New York, so it has a really great, uh, gritty uh, New York City feel to it. And uh, he has a slight romance, like he becomes interested in the uh, the ex, the girlfriend of the guy he killed, uh, played by Gene Tierney, in kind of a wasted role for her. Like I think Gene Tierney, when we finally get to a show where I talk about Leverett heaven you'll i will leave my heart on the table because it's one of my favorite movies and she she gives just one of those performances where uh it's it's beyond acting (laughs) you know it's a (laughs) presence in this she's a pretty face uh, they're not u- utilizing her in the same way. Uh, but you know, he, he it's a, it's, has got a very strange ending, like, and that's, and it's, you know, he's really looking for redemption and he gets an interesting redemption and it's surprising where it goes. And it's a good, really simple film. This isn't like, you know, Preminger has a couple films. I just, you know, think are, are my favorites. Uh, I know a lot of people that this is the, this comes highly recommended. I liked it a lot. It pairs perfectly. Uh, but it's a very simple, simple movie uh but uh is that one you're you're familiar with?
1: Oh yeah, I like that movie a lot. Um did you you mention the Twilight Time Blu-ray or no?
0: Oh, I didn't know it was. Yeah, uh, there's what? a
1: Twilight Time Blu-ray of this one as well. Ah, interesting. Inverted Twilight like? Time double feature. Yeah, no, I like this movie a lot. Um it's 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 definitely it's a really good pairing with what what I remember of Romeo, but yeah, oh. it's it's definitely one of those Andrews movies that is like you say, it's sort of a kind of a sister film to Laura, and one that is not as good necessarily, but it complements that film, and I find it an interesting companion piece to that film.
0: Yeah, again, it's the it's the cool thing about these classic noirs is you didn't need much in your story. You know, it wasn't so much about plot twists all the time. Somewhere like Laura's obviously much more in that mystery vein, but this was much much more like this is what's happening, and it's really just about watching the person go through it and what will they do about it and i know i, I love watching that it's the human dilemma uh, and i think the human condition at, at work and uh, i think noir puts like we we're saying at the top of the show with the gray area that these people are placed in i just think it's a lot more interesting than a lot of movies which presuppose that the person is good and will ultimately be good uh, that's not very interesting to me and that's what 90 percent of hollywood is built around now you know and um, i think there's something to really be uh, gleaned from these movies
1: yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I much prefer the gray area, the 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 more realistic, you know, dark side of human nature. Um, yeah. For my number three, uh, this is a film from Robert Benton from 1977, and I I, I may have mentioned on the show, but I have a fascination with films from 1977. <laughs> because, I love that. <laughs> well, it's this thing where I'm always like, okay, so the year that Star Wars came out. Star Wars obviously uh, dwarfed everything, um, uh, but there were all these other movies that you know sorcerer obviously that oh movie. my God,
0: that's and for anyone who doesn't know that came out the week after or I, before
1: i one w- after or before, but regardless it was totally and it destroyed,
0: just decimated, and then you watch it now, and you go, that's almost the best movie ever made, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, it's crazy, it's like it's unbelievable,
1: I think that's sort of where the impetus for my seventy seven fascination comes from is mm-hmm. this idea of people. You know, looking at the newspaper and going, "Oh, Star Wars! Let's go see that!" And then all the other ads that were around Star Wars. That and okay. So anyway, this movie's called. Oh well,
0: wait, wait, and not and sorry, not just seeing Star Wars once.
1: Oh yeah, let's go <laughs> see like, it's Star like, Wars yeah, again
0: next ten, let, ten months. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. That's what I mean. It just so so it sort of just I feel like it sort of destroyed a lot of movies that I think get left behind from that year. Um, but anyway, uh, this one's called The Late Show.
0: Go get him! Are you crazy. You could get him. I could get a heart attack. That's what I could get. Art Carney and Lily Tomlin are Ira and Margot in the Late Show.
1: But I swear to God, I feel just like Nick and Nora. Oh. Um, and uh, Robert Benton directed and wrote, and Robert Altman produced, which is a really nice combination. In that the movie has, um, it has Lily Tomlin in it, who I, I often associate with Altman, even though she wasn't in that many of his movies um she just feels like the sort of loose kind of um free-spirited actor that that he favored uh in a lot of his work um and she plays a free spirit in this movie she plays like sort of an, an actress sort of new agey well, not quite a, a hippie but um it's just somebody who's who's trying to get by uh and loses her cat and ends up um connecting with this older private detective named Ira Wells who's played by Art Carney who's been at it you know since the 40s you know he's he's been in the game a long time he still talks like he's from that period he calls women doll or dolly um he's he just speaks like he's straight out of an older film he's just very old fashioned um but so she loses her cat she hires Ira to uh, try and find her cat. Um, But there is, again, sort of a scenario where the cat is missing and the person who has the cat is involved with something a lot more sinister and a a lot deeper and darker. And and so it's a really fun sort of slightly comedic in parts, but also very, um, not scary, but, you know, it becomes sort of suspenseful in a way that is sort of unexpected at the outset. Although the movie does start with a scene where Ira is visited by a friend of his who has been shot and dies like right there in his, in his apartment. Um, And that's sort of the impetus for Ira is finding the cat, but his side thing is finding out who killed his friend. And the friend was actually looking for the cat at the time he was shot. So, um, it's But it's a really neat unfolding. Again, that's one of my favorite things about these movies is just sort of like as you watch, you try to figure out what's happening, but none of the characters are typically honest uh, when they show up in a movie. So you could, you could attempt to discern what's going on with them based on what they're saying, but they're usually lying. So, you know, it's kind of fun to just be like, well, do I believe that? Do I not believe that? What is that person's real deal basically and there's a whole bunch of characters like that in this movie um but it's just a really great throwback you know it's got a sense of um slightly long goodbye but I was going
0: to um, say, it sounds like you could be pairing it with Long Goodbye, the Coen Brothers cat film, and Cat in the Brain by Fulci. <laughs> for, a four-film festival.
1: <laughs> oh, cat movies. That's a good idea. We should do a cat I, episode.
0: I'll, get it. I'll tell you, when you told me, this is when you told me beforehand, I had never even seen the poster for the Like, that image, it just zero on my radar. And I. this is why I'm doing this show. I'm going to be honest. Like, it's hard for me and you've seen so many movies that it's hard to sometimes find new movies or find new recommendations that as soon as I saw the image to that and you know, hearing you speak about it, it's like up top of my list.
1: Yeah, it's great. It's, it's, it's one that I've been a fan of for a little while and, uh, it's actually on Warner archive instant. Uh, if people want to check it out there, um, the print is actually better on Warner archive instant than it is on voodoo and Amazon. I found like a little issue with the print on that. Anyway, that's neither here nor there, but, um, It's just a great throwback, you know, and Art Carney is one of my favorites and he will definitely come up again as I have, you know, two or three movies of his that are some of my all time favorites. And this is one of them. Um, But yeah, it's just seeing him together with Lily Tomlin is about as fun and sort of. I don't know, just the way they play off each other is very enjoyable. Uh, that I, sounds I, really great. I'm a huge fan of hers. Um, so I'm going to pair this one with Murder My Sweet."
0: If I hadn't been in my office that night with my brain cells playing hide-and-seek with those dizzy flashes down the street, I'd have never got messed up with a stolen jade necklace.
1: I've never hired a detective before. What are the rates?
0: As much as a traffic will bear.
1: When can you start? I've already started. Mm. Which is... Um, uh, Philip Marlowe story uh, with Dick Powell playing Philip Marlowe um, which is he, he? I think people either associate um, Marlowe with you know I guess like Robert Mitchum played him uh, you know Bogart played him uh, and Elliot Gould played him but I think a lot of people forget that Dick Powell also did and Dick Powell is actually one of my favorite Philip Marlows. He's just really, I don't know, he just really captures the spirit of the character, or at least my idea of what the character is, um, in this sort of Ch- Raymond Chandler world really well. He's just very sort of sarcastic and, and yet oddly confident at times, but still has the ability to you know, get involved with situations that he ends up on the sort of short end of the stick, basically. Um, I mean, he's, he's hired to find a jade necklace uh, that's been stolen. And then, uh, he, again, nothing's ever as simple as that first case. There's always something else going on. So um, it's got aspects of um, uh, sort of femme fatale stuff and just a general sense of, um, I don't know, it, it reminds me of the kind of movie that the Coen brothers are sort of aping when they do The Big Lebowski because you know, there's scenes where he gets hit over the head or he gets drugged and it's, I just remember them talking about the movie, uh, about the Big Lebowski and and the the scenes in the, that quote unquote typical noir film where the detective gets slipped a Mickey or something like that, you know? Um, And so this is, this feels like that movie, but it's far from typical because I just, I feel like, like I said, um, it, it has a great, sarcasm about it along with the fatalism of the character you know who just can't get out of his own way and is just kind of barely getting by in some level and I don't know Dick Powell really conveys that perfectly I'm just a big fan of Dick Powell as an actor and he doesn't I don't think get enough uh, recognition personally
0: Yeah, I don't think I've seen that one, so I'm gonna have to check. I know the cover. Uh, It's funny because when you're younger and you go through, watch a lot of noirs, some of them can bleed into each other. Oh yeah. So I think I have to see if that's one I've seen before.
1: Yeah, it's good. Good Warner Archive Blu-ray available too.
0: Uh, for my number two, uh, it's one, you know, one of my favorite directors and one of my favorite movies by that director. Uh, and it's being in number two doesn't really speak to whether it's my number one or number two. Uh, this is uh, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. I'm a club owner. I took a place from nothing and I built it into something. I've been
1: loan shark to death
0: by John Cassavetes, 1976. Uh, I'd start on the personal side. It's a film about Ben Gazzara struggling as a gambling, womanizing club owner who struggles with debt, and it really reminds me of my time running Jump Cut. Take it away, Tony. I killed a few people you know that's just how it is uh so in this film uh basically Ben Gazzar, who's always good in Cassavetti's stuff uh in this film he gets to play in genre and i think this is one thing that Cassavetti's films sometimes were lacking i mean I, and i love a lot of a lot of his films and i love his technique but uh sometimes when they get particularly the longer uh, more unwieldy features by placing it within a framework of a very simple almost high concept genre idea uh, it just really springs to life. And I, I think this is this is my top two Cassavetes. I'm a big mini Muskets fan as well. Um, oh, this too. film, yeah, it's, yeah it's a great film. It's so light and just, it's a beautiful, when we do romance, I'm going to put that in there. Nice. <laughs> uh, what's interesting about this before we get into the plot is there's a director's cut, which was a cut made a few years after its release. The theatrical cut was way longer, a good 40 minutes almost longer. Wow. Uh, and Gazzara hated it. He hated, and and most people would think the longer cut is the better cut, but in this case, the producers actually pressured Cassavetes to— get it on screen quicker and didn't want to let him have the normal time he takes because he shoots so much material the way he makes movies is obviously a lot of improv a lot of just uh, trying things uh he felt rushed to put it on screen and it's a bloated movie uh it's still great though and uh the shorter version which uh Gizar really kind of kept saying to him you really should go back and edit that movie you really should and he goes back and makes this much leaner under two hour movie where it just sings, man. It is, it is a sweet spot for this movie. Uh, and the only thing you really lose, which I would say if you're going to watch it for the first time, definitely watch the shorter cut, uh, as an entry point. But if you love the nightclub cabaret acts, which are pretty, fascinating and it really gives you like a flavor of the world definitely go to the other cut too because it really is nice it's not a bad movie at all it's just uh, and a lot of scenes change order it's not like a just trimming something out it's a total reconstruction so on that front uh at the basic gist Gazara, as i said is uh doing all the things that i did poorly at jump cut he's uh he's got a failing business that's running into the ground uh of course not in his mind he's a He's uh, a gambling addict. He's sleeping uh, with, you know, his favorite of his uh, stripper girls that uh, who do his cabaret. It's, it's a very gritty L.A. Hollywood, uh, you know, neo-noir uh, shot in, you know, the late 70s. Uh, he basically gambles. Uh, t- t- he gets a limo and he takes all his all his girls, literally, uh, with him to go gambling uh, and loses too much money. And afterwards, you know, they th- these gangsters, more or less, uh, are kind of making a deal with him and, He's like, I'll pay you. I got a business. All my money goes back in the business. You'll trust me. I'll I'll pay. Uh, And this is Gazzara's best role of his career. And that's saying a lot because he's a phenomenal actor. Um, And he goes back to his club and, you know, he has every intention of slowly paying them off. Uh, They come, Timothy Carey, you know, with the great crazy – Timothy Carey, a comedian, actor, uh, Kubrick uh, acolyte, uh, comes w- with a couple other guys and they, they meet up with him and they say, look, uh, you know, we can get rid of your debt or it might be half your debt, but you're going to have to – there's this Chinaman. He's down in Chinatown and he's like running things, the kind of head of this mob and we can't get to him. It's too tough. There's young guys are surrounding him with guns. We need somebody to just go down there, slip in and kill him. And Ben Gazar, it's revealed that Ben Gazar had been in the Korean War. So he's not a hitman. He's very resistant. And so it's it's a great... It's really nice to see this friction between this guy who just... He knows how to do this, but he doesn't want to do this. He's got a life that he enjoys uh, despite being, you know, a bit of a fuck-up, and uh, he, you know, gets pulled into doing this, and he has he has no choice, because they're gonna, you know, if not, it's gonna be his ass uh, that will get taken down. So, uh, you know, you have this great build-up towards uh, this hit that he's gonna do or not do, and I won't spoil it for you, because there's not a great deal of plot, obviously, uh, in some of these kind of uh, Cassavetes movies. Uh, the build-up to that's fantastic, and the Aftermath of that's even better and uh, There's double cross and him having to Deal with them turning on him um, Because of how the How the hit went and it is Very existential you know you're dealing With Gazara, just you're you're focused on Him every second of This thing you know the camera is just right on Him uh, it's unflinching. It's it, it, it And one of the ways I'm kind of pairing it with the next movie is this idea that it's like watching Gazara under a microscope. You know, you're just right there watching him, uh, almost like a specimen, uh, which will connect to, to the older film. But I love how uh, the one thing that Cassavetes does that none of the other filmmakers – really do is he grounds the tropes he takes these ideas they detectives and hitmen, and he just makes this the most realistic feeling thing that you could really be watching some guy being forced to do this thing and it's it's a terrific movie i hadn't seen it again and it's, it's one of those movies that really stuck with me first time i saw it and it was kind of my entry point into cassavetes and um Watching it a couple nights ago, I watched it on FilmStruck, which has both versions it's streaming. They look gorgeous. Uh, highly recommend it if you don't already own it. Um, and it, it's it's such an interesting uh, movie. And I, I kind of wish Casavetes had had a chance to work in the slightly more genre element a couple more times because I think it really works for what he was doing. Um, anyway, so that's uh, my old, uh, my new film. Uh, great movie. And then I, I this is the, this is a great pairing because uh, not so much story wise. But in terms of independent vision, an artist who was an actor who is directing a movie just like John Cassavetes was. Uh, and this is a film that I didn't know a lot about until a few years back. Uh, had a bit of a cult reputation. It's Blast of Silence. What we'll have to be game, Frank. Hey, you're going to have to pay luxury prices, boy. I'll pay you nothing. And even as he prepares to unleash his blast of silence, you will discover that you and Frankie Bono... Are playing the most dangerous game in the world nice. by Alan Barron, uh, who also acts in the film. And this is when, when all the heavens clear, when you pick two <laughs> movies and put them together, and the clouds part and a ray of sun uh, shines down on <laughs> you. The reason I'm saying that is I, I had already picked it. I'm researching it, and it turned out that Alan Barron had offered the lead role to Peter Falk.
1: Oh wow!
0: So and Peter Falk, for those who don't know it, is one of Casavetti's main staple actors, and two of his better best movies, "Woman on the Verge," uh, "Nervous uh, Breakdown." He, he, great, just a yeah, you know, Columbo, terrific actor who got a TV gig right at the same time, so he had to turn it down. Um, so Alan Barron ends up playing the role himself, which is a strange but interesting choice. The movie was shot for twenty-five grand, and it was a pickup by Universal. So that's something that just never happens. I think I learned that Josh Olsen or somebody on Trailers for Hell uh, talks about it, which is just kind of shocking uh, that they would pick up a $25,000 movie back then and give it a proper release. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, a, it's a basically – it's like a strange Freudian diary of a hitman. And it's gritty, and it and it's shot almost like a Eddies film, um, not quite as loose. Um, and it's, but a lot of it is stolen shots on the street, uh, going to locations that you you know don't usually see on screen. I think there's a sequence where they go to Harlem, which is really evocative. Uh, but it's a Cleveland hitman. Uh, he you know does his gig he he rubs people out, and then he takes the money. But what's unusual about this movie has this really strange I can't think of ever seeing a movie like this a voiceover that's very almost written as if it was a psychoanalyst speaking it's not the it's not the character's voiceover, and it's not somebody talking about the story. it's somebody saying talking directly to him, basically saying, Oh, well, now you've done it, and now you're doing this, and you're gonna be born into this world and the opening shot's like a tunnel. Uh, as we're going through a tunnel from a train's perspective, almost like the birth canal being born, uh, as it pulls into New York station, a very strange image to start with. So, uh, and it turns out that it was Waldo Salt who wrote this voiceover, wow. uh, just, you know, just a blacklisted writer, uh, you know, in the, uh, in the communism, so he wrote coming home for Hal Ashby. I mean, just fascinating movie uh really no nonsense the way it's shot is very minimal it's very very hard boiled he's a he's a kind of an asshole of a character uh and it's kind of just going into his final kind of angst and where it connects to killing a chinese bookie where he just like bookie he decides he doesn't want to do this particular hit anymore he gets too close he gets recognized by an old friend and it's just all the all the signs are off from what usually constitutes a clean hit for him, so he tries to back out. But they make it very clear to him: you back out, you're next, uh, which is how, how this work goes. Uh, it's also a Christmas independent film, which I love. It's set at Christmas time, and he's a guy who does is always alone on Christmas because he's a hitman. So he chooses not to be alone, and that's kind of where things get complicated. It has a couple of visual shots. One is the kind of post the image that they usually use to sell it, which is him cleaning a gun from below looking up and it's, it's striking even just on screen for like 10 seconds. It, it grabs your attention. And I think that's images like that. I have to imagine is what hooked uh, Scorsese. This is one of the, the films that Scorsese often champions, one of those smaller um, noirs that he's been talking about for years. So it was really cool when it finally came out. I don't think it's on Blu-ray. I think I I have the uh, Criterion DVD, which is still great. Yeah, I don't, know it need. It, there's some movies that you're like i don't know how much better this can look yeah um, but uh joe
1: dante's so, a fan too
0: yeah 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 i, he do, I know he it. does
1: the trailer from hell on it at uh at the oh, site cool. there and and i know i know he's talked about i think he talks about other alan Barron films and i'm forgetting i think there's one called pie in the sky that i've never seen mm-hmm. and yeah like never there's seen one more but uh yeah dante's definitely an alan Barron fan
0: yeah, definitely going to be tracking down his other ones because re- I remembered it uh, because I remember it from like a noir fest and seeing it with uh, one that hasn't made my list today that I really wanted to include called Murder by Contract, which Irving Berlin film is like one of my favorite of the like small, oh my God, how do people not know about this movie? And that's another one Scorsese, always champions. So uh, it didn't fit with anything. But this one, I think that pairing of my pairings might be my favorite pairing killing of a chinese bookie with blast Suns, because if you haven't seen either they're both really interesting and i think there's a lot of um kind of stylistic auteur elements coming through uh which is super cool
1: yeah no that's i I like that pairing a lot uh i like both those movies a lot i think chinese bookie might have been my entree into cassavetes too Mm. um and i haven't seen it in a long time so now i want to rewatch. Uh, actually both I I remember going past Blast of Silence when I was flipping through my DVDs trying to you know get some extra inspiration for this this episode so I'm glad you uh, you brought it up Um, and going from one of your favorite pairings to what I think is my favorite pairing that I've done in this group and that is um, starting with a movie that we split on uh, and you were nice enough to let me put on my list and that is The Driver Walter Hill's film
0: Ryan O'Neill is the driver. My line of work is kind of hard to come by. His reputation, the best wheel man in the city. Did you ever get caught on one of your jobs? Hasn't happened yet. Bruce Dern is the detective. I'm very good at what I do. My, Pretty much my, well, actually, Extreme Prejudice might be my favorite Hill film, but that's, I think, The Driver's one of his best. It's so sleek.
1: Yeah, no, it's, It's. I think it is my favorite over The Warriors and everything else it's just so stripped down and so minimalistic in a lot of ways while still being very stylish. Um, I mean, the basic story is that Ryan O'Neill plays a getaway driver and I I should mention this movie is obviously a huge inspiration on Nicholas Winding Refn, I think for drive. I mean, there's, I, I noticed this time around there's a straight up at least one or two shots that whether Refn acknowledges it or not, I don't know, but Oh he
0: would. He's he's the type to be totally fine with it. because it's LA at night. I mean, yeah.
1: Well there's a shot where he's where at the beginning of Drive O'Rion Gosling is looking out the hotel room window and there's a very similar shot in the driver. And it sounds like a simple shot, but if you look at it, they're just framed and lit in silhouette in a similar way. It's it, it just doesn't seem like a coincidence to me. But then obviously, um Edgar Wright is a huge fan as well, and he you know, his new movie Baby Driver is clearly Um, pulling inspiration from this movie. In fact, there was an Empire Magazine article where Edgar Wright and Walter Hill discussed the driver that came out um, February-ish of this year. It's a great interview. Mm. You should check out if you haven't read it. Um, But yeah, the basic idea is uh, that O'Neill is a getaway driver. He's one of the best. Um, He's sort of trying to get out, but he will work with um, you know, people that'll pay his price, which is, um, he asks for a large chunk up front, um, and he's he's basically worth it. Um, but the other sort of adversarial character in the movie is played by Bruce Stern, and he's this <laughs> totally bizarre, um, cop who has his own like, um, van that he drives around in with his own sort of detail of a couple other cops that are seemingly working on only trying to catch the driver. I mean, it seems to be his big goal is to, is to get the driver behind bars. Um, But Dern is just insanely good in this movie. Just so, I mean, the dialogue is, is, you know, as with um, Hickey and Boggs, it's great Walter Hill dialogue. It's, it's just very sharp and, and the way there's not much of it. No. I mean, (laughs) I think there's something about like Ryan O'Neill says like, 36 words or something. I mean, it's yeah. not that little, but it's, he sends, he says a very small amount in the movie. He does a lot of just sitting there reacting or non reacting, uh, and driving. Um, the opening, um, chase scene is fantastic, uh, through the streets of LA and it's just really well shot. The camera placement is really great. Um, it was fun to show my wife. I, th- I thought I'd shown my wife this movie, but we watched it the other night and she was just like, wow, you know, I think I think my, my wife she's not um it's not like I can't impress her anymore, but I've shown her a lot of movies that she's liked and sometimes I think she has an idea of what a movie will be and then sh- so she can kind of gauge her reaction as she's getting started with it. But this one when it, when it got to that opening chase, I think she even said like, "Wow, this is really this is really something else. This is good. This is really good. It well would
0: shown. it would be like one of my favorite. Like if we were doing a 5 LA films, it would probably make my list. I love the way they make photograph LA especially downtown oh, yeah. it's it's terrific but uh let's not forget one thing that's important you're borrowing my special lady friend from my my handshake
1: <laughs> that's that's
0: the one thing that's hard for me to swallow here
1: I understand Isabel Johnny is is the woman in the movie that's sort of between Dern and uh and 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 Ryan O'Neill although you know she has no interest in Dern whatsoever she she's just happens to be the one material witness to uh O'Neill um committing a crime one of his getaways and Dern is sure that she saw him and could ID him but she won't Um, so there's just sort of this tension between Dern and her and her and Ryan O'Neill but she's great I mean she is a captivating beauty to say the least um, and
0: she's just got a strange presence. I think that she wasn't in many. Uh, I can only think of one or two American films at all. So seeing her in an American set film is is quite unusual. So it's uh yeah, it just it, it just adds that other mysterious element to an already very mysterious, you know, minimal uh, film.
1: Yeah, it's I mean, and and all the performances are pretty minimal. Although Dern is Dern talks more than most anybody in the movie. But all, every, almost every line he has is gold. There's just yeah. almost everything he says is amazing. Um, but Isabella Johnny is also pretty quiet like um, like Ryan O'Neill is. But there's some great stuff. I mean, there's some scenes where it looks like O'Neill is... I don't know how much of his own driving he did. Probably not that much. But there's definitely a few scenes where he you can definitely see it's him behind the wheel. And there's one scene in particular that's one of my favorite scenes like ever. And that's where... Uh, O'Neill is hired by some some crooks to. to to do a job with them and they're basically like well how do we know you're any good and he shows them and I won't go into what he does to show them but it's a fantastic scene I
0: believe it takes place in a parking garage
1: it does (laughs) Um, and that's I just love it so much every time I watch it it just makes me smile it's so good well
0: I am pretty jealous that not that you put on your list I'm glad it's on the list I am jealous about the Blu-ray you have of it which is long out of print and very expensive Uh, the Twilight Time Blu-ray is uh, I think I was on eBay bidding for one I was up to like 60 bucks oh so I can't do that.
1: Well, hopefully, you know, it's been it's been out of print for a while. So it could be at a point where maybe another uh, company can license it. Maybe um, maybe even Criterion. I mean, they've done some Fox movies. And in fact, uh, my pairing is a Fox movie. It's a much older Fox movie. But um, yeah, so I'm, I'm just hoping that it comes out again because this, this movie needs to be in print. This movie needs to be ownable by anyone and everyone at, at any given moment.
0: And Hill in general is is so deserving of a real retrospect. Uh, Right now, the Arrow Theater in LA, which is out towards Santa Monica, they're they're retrospecting most of his films, not all of them. uh, Southern Comfort's not there, which I love. Extreme Bridges. Uh, I am going this week, so it's kind of an amazing time. Probably when this airs. Yeah, it'll be right after when this one airs, I'll be seeing The Driver and Hard Times with Walter Hill speaking in between. And I've never seen Hard Times. So for me, that'll be fun because that's his first film I haven't... It's one of the only ones I haven't seen. Uh, But I really think of him as a really important bridge director. He is the bridge, I think, between the... The Don Seagulls, the Aldrichs, two modern filmmakers. I, he is because of his age, he's right in between them. It's like he took all all of these great lessons from those guys and carried it through to now. And I'm also excited because he has a new movie out. You know, the uh, the assignment, I believe. Yeah, it's cool. And there's a good interview with him on um, Mick Garris' new show, uh, Postmortem. It's it's it, the only downside. It's only an hour, <laughs> yeah. and so it really only scratches the surface of uh, more, some more some of his horror work and stuff. But you just I could have listened to. Th- uh, three more hours of them talking about every movie because he's, he's a very giving interview subject. He's great. His stories are fantastic and he, and he's, you know, happy to talk about his work.
1: Yeah. He is something else, man. I can't wait to see the new one, but yeah, they don't talk about the driver. I don't think at all, unfortunately, but, um, no. but it, it, he does talk about Robert Aldrich that comes up, yeah, you know? So yeah. there's all kinds of, like you say, connections to him and older filmmakers. He's, he's just as much as John Carpenter gets love um rightly so i feel like walter hill gets it but he to me is like the action version of carpenter as far as the streak of great films that he made from the late 70s through the 80s like he just kills it there's so many amazing films it's ridiculous well and the
0: one thing that he has over Carpenter, even though i you know carpenter's kind of unparalleled for me in terms of genre but when hill worked outside of the obvious genres, his films are still really worked. And I don't think it was the same for Carpenter. So to me, like Brewster's millions and, um, uh, another uh, 48 hours are, I, I, Brewster's millions. I haven't seen since when I was a kid. I loved it. It was like one of my favorite films of childhood. Uh, I haven't seen it lately. Uh, 48 hours I did see again recently and I thought it was fantastic. like, yeah just a killer and so that's showing a guy that's a real versatility to be able to go outside of like just the straight genre trips and make his own car uh action comedy uh you know it's surprising and he well, wrote alien
1: well, yeah <laughs> so, and then he and then he made streets of fire which is uh, like yeah. a weird fantasy another one of my favorites of his movies but is not like everything else he did really i mean it has noir aspects to it in that way but anyway that'll come up again for sure in another show yeah i
0: think well bunch of hill titles will yeah
1: Maybe like all of them, pretty much. <laughs> anyway, um, so my pairing, again, I really I really like this one. And it is a driving pairing, but beyond that, the, the films are not that similar in some ways. But this movie's called Thieves Highway. Give him his money. What? Go ahead. We'll need it for that shot, Universal. If the Universal goes out, we'll park
0: your rig and come back for it later. Sure, we got lots of time. We're on a tour. You made a deal. Give him his money. Every John in the business will know about apples by tomorrow morning. They'll flood the market. We'll be peddling hours out of our hats. Give him his money.
1: It's from uh, 1949. It's directed by Jules Dassin. Um, another Criterion DVD. Um, but it's basically the story of Richard Conti, who plays like an XGI mechanic who is kind of a long haul driver. Um, and at the beginning of the film, he finds out that his dad, who is also a truck driver, was basically um, tricked and crippled ultimately by this very scummy and underhanded um, market operator, this guy who buys fruit and things like that and resells from uh, truckers. And there's this whole story about how his dad was supposed to get paid, but instead they went to celebrate and his dad got drunk, and the next thing he knew he woke up and his truck would flipped over and he was paralyzed. And so Conti finds out about it and he's like, well, I'm going to go fuck that guy up. So he he finds, he devises a plan to... Um, take a whole bunch of uh, apples. The new, the first crop of Golden Delicious apples. Um, uh, he finds a dude who has a truck on loan from his dad, um, and is like basically like I'm gonna take this truck back. You haven't paid on it, and the guy's like, whoa, whoa, whoa! I've got this deal with these apples, and what? Can't we talk about this? And so they end up making a deal where. Um, Conti goes with the guy to get the apples and they'll take them to San Francisco to this guy Mike Figlia, played by Lee J. Cobb in one of the best Lee J. Cobb performances ever. And that's saying something, because that guy's amazing. Oh, yeah, um, party girl, love him in Party Girl. Oh my God, he's great in that. <laughs> but this is, he's even better for me in this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the guys um, pick up the apples and then there's all this sort of perilousness of the truck is going to break down and can they get the apples they're on time and if, they, if they're if they late, then the apples won't be worth anything and the 1200 bucks they spent on the apples will be wasted. And um, So they have two trucks and they're trying to get them both there on time and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so Conti gets to San, San Francisco where Figlia is and right away Figlia starts fucking with him, you know, just like trying to pull one over on him and Conti's like not having any of it. Um, but Figlia is unfortunately a re- such a scumbag and so clever in terms of his, the tricks he has up his sleeve that things get, um, out of control. And, uh, but there's some just amazing scenes where Conti, uh, is, is talking to figlia in this way. That's very directly. Like, I don't fucking like you and you're going to pay me what you owe me. And we're not having any double talk. And anyway, um, he's just Lee J Cobb. I, I mean I've always I've always thought that you know again a great villain really makes a great movie and he's so hateable and so um scuzzy in the way that he deals with people but he feels real you know just a real cutthroat the de- de- defining sort of cutthroat businessman um so but you hate him so much that when you get to the end of the movie you want something bad to happen to him in, in such a in such a powerful way that um, it, it makes for an amazing climax to the movie. But it's just a really great gritty story of um, sort of desperate people trying to make a buck, and you know shitty people trying to take advantage of that fact. Um, it's just a i don't know there's something about it that i've i've always found so compelling but i think it would be an interesting again driving double feature there's it's not a crime movie in the same way but the driving aspect i think is enough of a connector and i feel like the two would play in tandem really well
0: if you lend me your driver blu-ray i will do that double feature <laughs> <laughs> cuz i actually i really want to revisit these i am a i think jules dassin is one of the best directors of this uh, type of genre and the movie that I became very close to putting on my list and one of the most mesmerizing films I've seen in my life like on screen was Rafifi yeah it has a high sequence where it's just silent and they're going through it. And it's just uh, – it's seeing it on a big screen when it kind of had that re-release maybe 15, 12 years ago or something. Um, It's just a remarkable movie. So uh, that and Naked City, a lot of great movies. Uh, but I want to – I actually do want to do that double feature. I, of, of the ones you said so far, I'm really curious to see those two back-to-back.
1: Yeah, I'd be curious what you think.
0: Um, Okay, number one. Here we are. Uh, This is a movie that I don't think t- – too hard about placing it at number one it's 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 i'm putting it there it it is one of my favorite movies for sure but i'm also putting there because i i do think there's a lot of people still who could discover this film uh and we both know it's a tarantino favorite charlie varick at number one
1: what do you want oh i'm sorry i didn't mean to scare you which doesn't mean i won't throw you right out that window if i have to
0: sooner or later you're gonna tell me everything you know So why not save yourself a great deal of pain? First, Charles Varric. Joe Don. Joe Don. This is a classic hit of my favorite people because, yes, we've talked about Joe Don Baker a lot. But what you don't know is that, and it's going to come up. I've got a couple topics for next season that uh, it will come up. with. uh, One of my favorite character actors, I think the same way you're talking about Lee J. Cobb. And in this movie, he doesn't have much to do. But even when he shows up, I'm so thrilled. John Vernon. Oh, an absolute fit. when I was a kid and I saw Killer Clowns from Outer Space for the first time <laughs> and he comes in as the sheriff and I I hadn't seen other not consciously other films he had been in there was something about him on screen that I knew he was a good actor and I couldn't tell you why I'm like 14, 13, 12, whatever I, there's something about him that I remembered and then years later I saw him in a couple crazy movies uh, that I'm going to save for another day and then, I saw him in a, and then I saw him in something that's really weighty and then I saw him play a principal in this and then I saw him play a criminal and at there's a certain moment I just realized you know what I think he's one of my favorite actors <laughs> and it's in this he's you know the bad guy that they're ripping off uh, but Joe Don Baker and an actor who I think is incredibly underappreciated in this period of movies this is him one of the earlier kind of films for him but Dirty Harry's obviously a standout is Andrew Robinson. Johnson has an energy. He's the bad guy in Dirty Harry. He's uh from the dad in Hellraiser. Oh yeah. So very recognizable. And this he's playing um the partner to uh Charlie who who is played by uh Walter Matthau. in his the best. This is a movie that I just didn't have any interest in watching this movie. I kind of think I took uh, on our cult movie about um, in Bruges. It was just a movie I had no interest in seeing. Charlie Varick I felt similarly. It's something I saw in the video store a million times on the shelf, and I think it's his full name. I'm from a generation who Walter Matthau meant grumpy old men. <laughs> you know, like, we were, like it, it was before I had discovered like Taking a Palm One Two Three, which kind of totally shifted my viewpoint on and a laughing which is
1: policeman a, is another uh, one. Yeah, so much good Matthau.
0: Oh, I mean, Matt, that was just fantastic. But this role, it's like to get a role like this is to me, this is like getting in the American James Bond role. It's <laughs> that great. it's just so fun. And. And it's very different than some of the Norse we're talking about because of uh, we've been talking about nihilism and uh, existentialism and all these ideas that are very uh, much part of honor. This still has all the crime, the double crossing, the femme fatales, the uh, you know just all these kind of uh, mobsters. But what's different is Charlie Varick, and it's even in the poster. He is always one step ahead of everyone, and he is cleverer than anyone. And unlike everyone else, he's always using his brain, and it, and it's so refreshing. And it's such a smart movie. And so basically, it has this opening rewatching it for the show I, I i had forgotten this but it opens kind of like blue velvet which is super cheesy montage of a small town and the the cheesiest music it's almost unbearable where you start to go oh is this this isn't how i remember it and then you quickly realize it's just setting the scene for when their car rolls up and he's dressed like a super old man and his uh his you know wife is driving the car and they pull up outside a uh, outside a bank, and then they, you know, they are pretending to go cash a check, and it becomes a big robbery scene. Uh, and Andrew Robinson plays this young buck who's, you know, part of his crew, and the third member gets shot. And as they're uh, doing this heist in the middle of nowhere bank that shouldn't have that much money in it in the first place, they get home, they open the money, uh, he gets shot, his wife ends up, uh, the driver ends up being shot and killed. So he obviously is getting upset about that, but they look at the money and they have like half a million dollars. And so it's him. They're, they're holed up in this like middle of nowhere, uh, again it's a non-urban noir they're a middle of nowhere a trailer park and they're like shit Andrew Robinson doesn't know what to do you know he just wants he thinks they've made it and Walter mathaus like we're not spending a cent of this for at least three years <laughs> and Andrew Robinson is not happy about that and he gets drunk and so you've got this like interesting relationship between the two of them but Matthau's smart enough to be like mm, I don't understand why that much money was sitting in that bank there's something wrong and you start to realize like you know it's probably this is a laundering thing and somebody was storing money there and John Vernon, uh, who's the head of a a bank from a different city, is coming to town because he realizes uh, that this has not gone the way it was meant to go. Uh, And he hires a guy we like to call Joe Don Baker. (laughs) And Joe Don Baker comes in to just basically sort it out and figure out what's gone down. And he is a no-nonsense Uh, mofo in this movie and he is fantastic and there is one of the great lines in a movie he's a big uh, cowboy kind of character in in this and uh, he gets put up in the local brothel and he has no interest in the prostitutes at all he just He's staying at – He's just. there's a great line where he's just like, I don't have sex with prostitutes. I don't pay for sex, and, uh, which after a buildup of you think he's going to go off with one of these girls. Anyway, He's he goes to the bedroom, and he, that's where he's going to hole up for a couple of days. And he just sits there, and there's this great beat where it's so real. He just turns to the madame, and he's just like, no waterbed?
1: <laughs> I totally remember that. <laughs>
0: and it and it killed me on this viewing i just loved it and it's those little nuances and don Siegel, look he's and this i guess is the uh andrew robinson connection to dirty harry because don Siegel just john Siegel just made really good movies man they are entertaining and i don't think people really tend to think of them necessarily as an auteur or like a journeyman but they're just type movies but this movie uh just becomes so much fun and it is so politically incorrect that i i love how refreshing that is looking back to this time period like the way uh the way just men and women talk to each other and it's just so much fun uh you know there's you know all sorts of especially joe don baker's character there's all sorts of stuff he gets into but it builds to an incredible climax that has a awesome north by northwestern tribute with a crop duster uh and it's a character who has really outplayed everyone and and it is There aren't many movies I can think of where I'm so thrilled by the ending of this movie when the final kind of twists come and it's all kind of laid bare. I remember just feeling like elated because it had taken me somewhere very different than traditional noir often went. But it still had all the tropes. And if you have not seen this one, I know Tarantino is a huge fan of this. Uh, And if it plays at a theater, you know, this is a movie you've got to get on. Couldn't
1: agree more. I love it.
0: Yeah and I knew you'd be a fan. I knew this would be one that you would also have, you know, equally been a fan of. Um so I, I will admit it, it wasn't easy to pair this one because it is so unusual in a lot of ways. And so I I went with it's it's not one of my stronger pairings in terms of thematic, but I think it's uh, it's a great way to go because I think uh it's definitely in the top 2 noirs of all time for me. Uh number 1 is one we both will talk about a bit later that isn't on either of our lists, but uh Asphalt Jungle is a superb, to me, perfect movie. Let me go with you. Please, Dix, please. Are you crazy? I'm on the lam. i want on it bad, packing heat. If there's any trouble, what good would you be? I could drive. I'm wanted on a killing rap. You know what that means. I don't care. I just want to be with you. Uh, John Huston, 1950. Uh, it's the best heist movie, period. Uh, and it is... And what I like about the reason I'm combining these two movies has nothing to do with the heist. The only thing I'm comparing is perfect ensemble casting. These two movies have two of my favorite ensembles on screen. The the ensemble in Asphalt Jungle is just amazing because they're all so different from each other. It's this group of men who all have you know, the different skills to pull up the heist. But they're led by Dix Handley, which is played by Sterling Hayden. And he's basically, the in a sense, the opposite of Matthau, where... He his dreams and his kind of dumb lug ishness it gets in the way of being able to think outthink the results that are going to happen and he keeps dreaming about you know retiring on a farm and getting back to a farm and getting out of the city almost like the the rural setting is an escape for these noir characters of, of a better life possibly that he's never going to get because like good classic noir he's doomed you know Uh it is such a good movie I saw it again. I'd always liked it, but I saw it again about a year ago. It must have been maybe as Criterion. I'm not sure who put it out. And it is – it just looked so good. It's also you know, largely famous because it's one of the early Marilyn Monroe roles, and she just you know, plays the young love interest uh, of uh, the actor who actually looks like Sidney Greenstreet uh, but isn't. And I, his name just escaped me. But – it's i imagine this is a film you're you're a fan of
1: oh definitely yeah the, i was really psyched the criterion blu-ray came out yeah like you said last year i think good 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 stuff i i think i prefer the killing as a uh, heist movie but but uh they're both uh, quite the pair of uh, i think
0: the killing is better in terms of the action of a heist but the this is this i guess this is a, it's a different kind of movie it's about the people and the way they all all the each character basically comes undone from that because they can get away with this heist. They have the money that they, they, it's it's easy and easy out. Each one of them fucks up because of something uniquely about themselves. And there's this old guy who's just, you know, the best character and he just gets undone by a pretty woman dancing. You know, it's too much for him to resist. It, it's it's a really special if you haven't revisited it once the criterion i think it's one of those movies that when you revisit it you realize wow this is like really one of those noirs that's it's it's kind of a perfect movie and um uh i think these would actually pair really well though so it's even though i i know it's light on the thematic connection i think the idea of the ensemble and uh the way it kind of pl- they kind of play out with lots of characters getting uh very screen time uh, i think i think you couldn't go wrong with that as a double
1: i agree and i will take one more thing about the two that I like is that asphalt jungle definitely has this even more so than the killing in some ways because the um, the stylistic aspect of uh, you know showing the robbery from all the different points of view is cool but it takes you out of the world and the story just a little bit Um, whereas asphalt jungle is much more straightforward, but also has this idea of how criminals talk to each other. Um, Again, going back to the Revenge episode and the outfit and sort of what the underworld is like. How do you put a group of people together to pull off a heist? And I think The Asphalt Jungle does that really well um, for a movie of that period, in some ways shedding light on what that world is kind of like. And mm-hmm. I think Charlie Varick is in the same way. You're dealing with um, the criminal element on a a more sort of gritty, realistic level. Um, and I think that that thematically works for both.
0: And they're both really likable leads. Uh, Sterling Hayden has never, to me, never been more like. There's something I'm really drawn to him in this film. I mean, he's always great. He's great in The Killing. He's great, great in Long Goodbye. But I think this is one of his uh, finest roles. And and you know, Walter Matthau's amazing. So yeah, uh, it, yeah, it's really fun. It's been real. This is this, these were fun ones to pair.
1: Yeah. Um. Okay. So my number one. Um, and, well, I'll get to that. But my number one is. Uh, Night Moves.
0: Harry thinks if you call him Harry one more time, he's going to make you eat that cat. Gene Hackman. Is Harry Mosby. Hello, Harry.
1: In Night Moves. Oh, come on, take a swing at hey, me, Harry, the way Sam Spade would. From 1975, uh, it's Gene Hackman, um, directed by Arthur Penn. It's really, truly one of the the movies that that stays with me every time i watch it and has gotten better much like another neo noir that's not on my uh list and again the long goodbye um that will come up at some point i i don't know why i didn't put it on the list i think i just wanted to highlight this one but both those movies for me night moves and uh the long goodbye were movies that i enjoyed the first time but since upon sub- subsequent viewings have become s- so much my favorite stuff Um, that always surprises me when a movie when I'm not lukewarm when I but when I'm not blown away the first time and suddenly a movie sneaks up on me and I'm just like that is a perfect film Um, and Night Moves is incredibly cool in that well a I just love Gene Hackman I think he's Mm -hmm. one of my favorite (laughs) actors and in the 70s he just uh, there's few actors that just could do quite what he does and this performance is so fascinating he plays an ex-football player um that now has his own private detective agency and uh he's married uh his wife uh, runs an art gallery or something um and he's got this buddy that's played by kenneth mars from the producers and what and uh, uh young frankenstein and stuff who runs like a larger detective agency that he is keep trying to hire... His name's Harry Mosby, the, the the Hackman character. He keeps trying to hire him to come and be part of his agency, but Harry doesn't want to do that. He wants to fly on his own. Um, but the movie is really interesting in that it's it's a conventional noir story in a lot of ways. Uh, Harry Mosby's hired to find a young girl uh, who is the daughter of an aging starlet, an aging actress. And... Um, the daughter is played by Melanie Griffith in her first role, and she's really good. Um, Cause
0: she's actually the daughter of an aging starlet. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it could be that, yeah. I mean, but she's she's fantastic in the movie. Um, but so Harry sort of ends up going down to the to Florida, uh, I think the Keys ish, to find her. She the girl ends up being with her stepdad, and it's this whole thing. Um, and I, and I think that that will tie into my pairing, which was ride the pink horse. Um, it doesn't quite line up as well as yours. I think yours is a better pairing of ride the pink horse, but, but anyway, the the thing I love about this movie is that it, Harry is constantly sort of struggling to put, put the clues together and, and make things line up. It's almost like OCD or something. If he feels like if he can find the clues and solve the case, everything will be okay. Um, and, this particular case is not as cut and dried as some of the other ones and ultimately there's a lot of answers that he can't get and even the ending of the film doesn't give all the answers Um, that's one of the things I love about it but just this idea of um, you know not being able to answer everything and that you know human beings in general are are sort of just messy and we don't we don't do things and have proper motivations that always make sense. And, you know, so just the idea that you would, as a detective, you would expect things to tie up in a nice, you know, bow at the end, um, is kind of ridiculous. And so, so it's a fun movie from the point of view that Harry thinks he knows what's going on, but he doesn't. And every once in a while, something will happen that totally shifts his perspective on, what is happening with these people, you know, who, again, a lot of people aren't being honest with him. He's trying to figure out who is, what the real truth is, um, why people are doing what they're doing, which is not totally explained. And, and that's another thing I love about it is the ending is so, um, I don't want to say cryptic, but it's taken me like five or six viewings to get to a place with it where I'm like, okay, I kind of get this, but even this last viewing, I watched it again and there's a, there's a great couple final shots that then I went and read Roger Ebert's review of the movie. And I don't totally agree with everything he's saying in it, but he brought up some things in his review that I hadn't even really thought about um, as far as what you can take away from those final shots. So I don't know, just a great performance from Hackman and just an interesting character uh, as far as you know, Keep, how he keeps things at arm's length and how he approaches things always from the detective point of view and how poorly that serves him most of the time.
0: Well, in terms of double features, I have thought about this before. I think one of the greatest double features of all time would be that film with the conversation. Yeah, Because it's Gene Hackman in both of them. Both have the esoteric ending and he's called Harry in both films.
1: It's true. It's and true, and yeah. they
0: really are two of the best movies. I mean, I think Conversation is one of the greatest movies ever made. I'm looking at your Skype photo right now, which has Gene Hackman in the Conversation, so that's <laughs> funny. Uh, but I also I agree with you. Arthur Penn's movie. You know, I got to meet Arthur Penn at my film school. He came down to Savannah, uh, where I was at film school, and he, you know, probably in the last couple years of his life, I guess, and uh, that was the movie. I went straight up to him at a party knowing most people weren't even that interested because he's just Bonnie and Clyde to most people. Uh, but I went up to him and talked about this movie because I was, like you, I was like enchanted is the best way to put it like i didn't fully get all of it but i was in you know like there are stuff and the moment which i love most now now that i live in la is there's a moment where he passes the new art oh that's right and he trails somebody after a movie and i've always that moment as well like one of those great la on screen moments which i always love but you're right melanie Griffith is so alive and young and and it's so like enticing for him she's one of those personalities that kind of pulls you in and, and it's such a yeah, there's so much gray area in this movie and, and he's just great I'm with you. I, I Gene Hackman's like, you know, just one of those actors I I just uh, am always in love with almost everything he's done, you know, Yeah. Um, except welcome to Mooseport. But uh, <laughs> his last film, sadly. I had Dignity once. Does anybody remember that? Uh, but yeah, that's no, that's that's a great pick. Well, you know, I, I want to hear a little bit of your, your thinking with uh, Ride the Pink Horse. And I want to say before that, this is the first time in the history of the show <laughs> that we have had, and it's going to happen a lot as sure. we go. But that is the reason you should be buying Ride the Pig Horse if you have never heard of that movie, you know? Trust us.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, a double endorsement is is the highest praise we can give on the show, especially because it was unknown that, that unknown. we both picked it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I was thinking along the lines of, uh, you know, a character, a sort of conventional noir that's taken again out of the urban setting, and although... Night Moves takes place partially in L.A., a good part of it takes place, um, you know, in Florida, uh, on the on this coastal area, this sort of, that reminds me of someplace south of the border in a lot of ways, but, you know, just the idea of it, noir tropes taking place outside of the city. I think was part of it. You know, that was the both
0: pretty convoluted, a lot of stuff happening.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know why. And I think both just because I really love both movies. And sometimes to me, um, a pairing from the gut is just like, I really like these two and they are similar in genre in a sort of a genre way. And maybe they don't have a thematic connection, but they're both good. And two good movies together is still a good double feature.
0: Yeah, no, I, I'm totally I'm totally with you, and I really want, so is Night Moves, uh, is that on a blue?
1: It's not on a blue, it's on Warner Archive Instant, um, so people could watch that there, uh, but God, I would love uh, to see Warner Archive put this one out, although I feel like they actually commented at some point. Um, I was tweeting about it, and sometimes they won't comment at all, which doesn't mean that they're they're doing the blu-ray but sometimes they'll say we have no plans which is saying they're definitely not doing the blu-ray right now and i think they actually said that about night moves so i'm super bummed but
0: that is strange because it's such it's a movie that has found a lot of interest in the last i feel like probably around the time i felt like i discovered it felt like that's also when people were discovering it probably because of dvd and uh you know maybe eight ten years ago and so i'm surprised i think i think there'd be a lot of interest
1: yeah, I mean, it's just perfectly in the wheelhouse of the cult stuff they've been doing, and it's just one of the great films of the 1970s. So here's hoping they actually get around to it or maybe Criterion license it, licenses it from Warners. That would be also yeah. amazing.
0: Uh, there And that these, this has been super fun. There's one title I, I told you a little earlier that I uh, didn't want to put on my list because it's a, it's a real deep cut and it's really difficult to get, but there is a foreign uh, Blu-ray I've heard um, and I haven't seen it yet. Uh, this is a film that Monty Hellman actually showed me. Uh, and it's, it, I think it was the number one on one of my lists for you a, two or three years ago. It's called Série noir. It's a French noir from 79 by, uh, Alain Corneal. It's based on a Jim Thompson, uh, short story called a hell of a woman. And it has, it, and, and it would have been my number one, like, I'm not kidding. This is one of the, those most kind of like probably how you felt about night moves. When I saw this movie, I couldn't, Believe that it was an. It's not so much the film, but the performance by there's an actress, uh, Patrick Diwari, and he had been in a couple uh, Bertrand Bleer kind of comedies that did pretty well. And he's this young actor and he's playing, you know, one of these. He's a neurotic uh, door to door salesman and he kind of gets, you know, ends up having a relationship with a teenage girl and all this stuff starts happening. But he is so intense and it is. It's one of those performances that uh, you'll never forget. Uh, the, as long as I live, I'll remember this performance and this kind of neo-noir, uh, and there's a, scenes of him like screaming, and it almost seems borderline unhinged. Um, almost maybe like say how you might feel about the master, but a little more controlled than that. So it works. Uh, and this film is absolutely wor- a deep cut worth seeking out. Uh, and it has, a, and it's horribly tragic that like, I think a couple years after this role, he uh, at like 30, you know, committed suicide in France. Uh, and a lot of people say, you know, this, this movie maybe be, we're starting to see the phrase in him, but he still was in another five or so movies before that. But it really left a a huge impression on me. I can't say it enough. And I, I just knew I wanted to include it here as a breadcrumb from some of you who maybe have seen all the noirs that we talked about today but hadn't heard about this, uh, I want you to find it and discover it and, uh, you know, get the feelings it it gave me. And I I think somebody made me a burn of the Blu-ray and sent it to me. So I'm going to check it out and I'll lend it to you, Brian, if it, if it works. Very cool. (laughs) I have no idea. Uh, so, uh, great episode. I love doing this, this, talking about this. I mean, I can't tell if it's a good episode to the listeners, but I thoroughly enjoyed getting to talk to you about noir and diving back in uh, to these movies. It was totally a, a pleasure to watch them all again. Uh, we want to thank, uh, the now playing network.net, our home and, uh, uh, Jim and you know, all the, all the very supportive other shows, uh, on the network.
1: Yeah. I was just looking at, um, fresh perspective, um, just put out an episode on gray gardens, uh, that I want to check out, and it's sort of a two-part documentary. They did Grizzly Man, and then Grey Gardens as the next episode. So uh, cool. two two documentaries from that show that I, I definitely want to hear them talk about.
0: Uh, and in closing, uh, we're gonna both uh, just tell you we're not gonna talk about it too much. Hopefully, we'll find another place for it. Uh, but we both talked off record that are I think both of our favorite noir of all time. Am I right in saying
1: that? I think so. Yeah. You want to say it? Out of the past.
0: Maybe i don't care out of the past and I, I i it might have paired at the front with red rock west but it, it didn't that it Jacques Tenier, uh robert mitchum it is a if you haven't seen it and I, we assume most of the people listening to a show like this might have been, been down with these but that movie is astounding and it is to me as all the trips just the lighting everything the fatalism exactly and the, and, the, and the femme fatale uh, everything about it I think it uh, again it's uh, you know kind of goes out of the urban setting it is just a tremendous movie and so if you haven't seen that it's always nice to just end with a movie that if we both agreed it might be the best noir of, of all then uh, it's probably worth a look absolutely uh, thanks for listening uh, we will be back next week and uh, uh, you know your support your comments uh, we really appreciate it come on read my future for You haven't got any. What do you mean?
1: Your future is all used up.